when I was setting up the um, cast room, generally when I was setting it up, I would direct the show audio's listening track uh, to my computer's default audio driver. But that was when I was using the desktop computer that didn't have internal speakers. <laughs> oh. So this time I set it to my default audio driver on my laptop, but my laptop has speakers. So I'm like, oh, crap, my voice is coming out of the laptop, too. So uh, figuring out what I could use, I finally, I think it was like a Steam streaming speaker or something like that. I put it on that I knew wouldn't actually come out of the laptop itself. So hopefully that's not doing anything to whatever's getting recorded here. If it does, we may do this again. everyone, and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring, where we take a look at the good old days and not-so-good old days of World Championship Wrestling Series by Series. I'm your host, Bob Moore, and joining me is a piece of you-know-what with something to pay, Alec Bridgen. I feel like I'm being insulted, but I'm not really sure. <laughs> the missing words are pretty vital to that uh, description, so I'm going to go with Thanks. Yeah, I mean, it could be a a piece of absolute treasure with $20 to pay for dinner. Then that's, I'm good with that. Yeah. 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 Fair enough. (laughs) How's it good tonight, Al? Uh, Pretty well. Pretty well. How about you? I'm doing all right now that the audio difficulties we were having are are hopefully sorted. Uh, (laughs) Fingers crossed. Yeah, fingers crossed on that. Tonight, we are taking a look at Beach Blast 1993, A Day at the Beach, A Night for Revenge. I don't know. Personally, I'd rather do the revenge in the daytime than have the evening off to spend time at the beach. You know, yeah. if, you spend the, if you spend the whole day at the beach stressed out about your coming revenge plans, you wouldn't be able to enjoy yourself properly, you know? It's true. Maybe this is foreshadowing Baywatch Nights. Maybe, maybe. That might be. Because by day, he's helping you know, rescue people and or fighting aliens. And at night, he's a detective and sometimes also fighting aliens. Right, yeah. I mean, that those things are so different. I, exactly, yes. <laughs> Incidentally, this year, Beach Blast replaces WCW's traditional July show, The Great American Bash, which was not held in 1993. I guess America was canceled. I, I guess so. From 1994 onward, Bash at the Beach will be the July show, and the returning Great American Bash will shift to June, that despite quintessential American holiday, the 4th of July being in, you know, July. I, don't know, I, I was a little more um, fond of July 5th personally, but that's just me. <laughs> that's, a, that's a personal thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> we have, uh, have 4th of July and then we have Alec Bridgen Day. Yes. I celebrate that every year, obviously. Well, yeah. Beach Blast 1993 was held on July 18th, 1993, at the Mississippi Coast Coliseum in Biloxi, Biloxi, Biloxi. I think it's Biloxi. I think it's Biloxi. They say it a million times on the show, you'd think I would have figured that out. Yeah. In Biloxi, Mississippi, in front of 8,600 fans, 4,000 paid. The Mississippi Coast Coliseum is recorded as seating between 9,150 and 11,500 people, depending on the seating. So while WCW certainly didn't fill up the arena, it at least got more than halfway there this time. 
Right. They didn't actually sell half more than halfway there, but they filled it. On this the is thing. true. Baby steps, Al. Baby yeah, steps. Yeah, that's true. Okay. They'll, they'll do better at uh, filling readers officially later, obviously. Yes. <laughs> Beach Blast 1993 earned 100,000 pay-per-view buys, which is quite solid for WCW in 1993, tied for second place with two other shows and only behind Starcade 1993's 120,000. Not bad then, yeah. So, is it, in fact, safe to go back into the water? To find out, let's go to the ring. Beaches of Biloxi are hot, and the action will be explosive. See, say Biloxi right there. Championships and pride are on the line. Can Paul Orndorff defend his television championship against Big Ron Simmons? Is WCW's Iron Man, Ravishing Rick Rude, or Young Lion Dustin Rhodes? Will the trash talk in Hollywood blondes withstand the challenge of horsemen Anderson and Roma? Who holds the ultimate power in WCW? The evil masters of the power bomb or the superpowers? And will history be made tonight as Nature Boy Ric Flair attempts to walk that aisle one more time? World Championship Wrestling presents Beach Blast! A similar intro video to last year brings us in, building up our TV title match, Iron Man match, World Tag Team title match, and Ultimate Power match? That sounds important. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. Or, or like something from He-Man. Yeah, I think Ultimate Power is one of the miniseries that did in the Ultimate comics as well. That's true, that's true, yeah, yeah. God, I'd forgotten all about those. Oh, and the NWA title is on the line, too. Yes. Eric Bischoff, dressed like a 40-year-old, doing his best to dress in those hip clothes that hip teenagers wear, complete with a woeful attempt to look cool in a backwards baseball cap, mm-hmm. intros the show alongside Missy Hyatt. Missy cannot wait for the first match and for Pina Coladas. Eric builds up several of the matches and throws to our commentary team for the night, Tony Schiavone and Jesse the Body Ventura. Tony's dressed somewhat similarly to Eric, but with the addition of orange sunscreen on his nose. With the sunglasses, it looks like he's wearing one of those pairs of novelty glasses with the big fake nose and mustache and googly eyes. I was thinking that too, yeah, yeah, for sure. Tony says he can't locate Jesse, but hears that he's been found. Turns out he's up on stage with some attractive ladies. Tony notifies him that they're on the air, and Jesse, as the arena lights briefly go out, <laughs> agrees to come host, but says that afterwards he and the ladies have other things to do. He and the ladies make their way to ringside, as Tony suggests that they keep the ladies and send Jesse back. That'd be interesting commentary, for sure. <laughs> it would, yeah. Tony gives us a let's go to the ring as we head to our first match. Let's go to the ring as we begin Beach Blast from the Luxie! Yeah, I guess let's go to the ring as we begin. Could be like our official name of like parentheses as we begin there. Yeah, maybe that's the unofficial title of our first episode. You know, that that, that would have been good. Or if we branch off to reviewing, um, you know, the first episodes of things. Mm, yeah. But they have to be exclusively like boxing or wrestling or other sports that take place in a ring or um, wedding series. I'll say we, we could do every first episode of The Bachelor. That would cover us for a while. It's like... Yeah, the downside is we would have to watch any episodes of The Bachelor. That is true. I mean, it, everything has its ups and downs, I'd pop. <laughs> so our first match is Ron Simmons versus Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff for Orndorff's WCW World Television Championship. The referee for this one is Randy Anderson. 
So back in March, Paul Orndorff became the WCW TV champion after winning, guess what, Bob? A tournament. A tournament, of course. Yes. The tournament happened because in the final months before he left, they gave the TV title to Scott Steiner, thinking he wanted to be a single star. He did not and left the company. Thus leading to the 1993 run him and Brother Rick have in WWF. Gotcha. So in recent times, he's been facing off with the talent of Ron Simmons on television. Not on pay-per-view, mind you, just on television across Saturday night and worldwide, which is sadly missing from the network and Peacock. I don't know why worldwide, which is such a big part of these years, is just not available. Anywho, the running story there is that Ron Simmons is telling for the title. They would have DQ finishes, and then they would have these really weird parts of the rules where Ron Simmons could challenge for the title, but if he won after the 10-minute time period, which is the time they give for TV title matches on television, as opposed to pay-per-view, which he gives 15, the win didn't count for in the title. So he did that as well. He beat him like 11 minutes into a match. So they keep wrestling after the 10 minutes, but if he yes. wins after the 10 minutes, he just, I guess, theoretically... They never really say this, but theoretically, they're also for money or something. So yeah, they they, they occasionally say how important the you know, the winners' purses and everything. Yeah, so I guess in theory, he wins something, just not the title. I mean, if it was me personally, if I got a match like that, if I you know ten minutes goes by and I'd be, I'd just throw him over the top rope and screw it. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you might as well. Yeah, <laughs> just find the nearest chair and waffle the guy. Exactly. The closest thing these ha- guys had to having a proper match on a big event besides television was on the previous Class of Champion show in the build-up to this. However, at the time, Paul Wonderful's champion was injured, so his buddy Dick Slater came in and substituted for him in that match. Which, of course, Brian Simmons won. Simmons does a much better job representing FSU this year, wearing their school colors and with a Tomahawk logo on his tights. Mm-hmm. He's also got the wonderfully silly Don't Step to Ron theme song this year. Just amazing, amazing work. I noticed throughout this show, there's a real step up in the ridiculous theme game. Yes. Everyone's got their proper 90s silly themes. Yeah, this is the this is the year, I think, when we started hearing it at Starcades as well. So I think it's yes. between 92 and 93 Starcades when everybody starts getting their uh, their actual lyric songs. Yeah. Because yeah, we have we also we have Man Called Sedang, we have Natural we hear later. Yep. Johnny B. Bad has his, okay. yep. I'd forgotten Barry Wyndham's theme. Yes. Watching that. Yeah, that was <laughs> that that one's amazing as well. The vocals aren't even in proper rhythm at points to that because they're trying desperately to keep with the song rhythm, but they are kind of cram cram in all the words that they wrote. <laughs> yes. It took they hired a songwriter and a writer separately. Yes, and didn't ne- never, never let never them beat. <laughs> they never, no, ne- don't, no, doubt of it, ruined things, yeah. And then the singer just had to make it work. <laughs> exactly. Paul Orndorff, for his part, has a quite nice dark blue and silver robe. Mm-hmm. Fans greet him with chants of Paula, and he grabs a Paula pennant from ringside and rips it up. Tony and Jesse discuss the special stipulation for the match. If Orndorff gets disqualified, he loses the title. This because he's been willingly getting DQ'd to retain the title using the normal champion's advantage rule. Correct. Orndorff yells at the crowd, so Simmons knocks him off the apron. Back in, Simmons earns two with a dropkick, and Orndorff retreats to endure more chance. Orndorff's tights, by the way, are great. They read, Mr. Number One Durful. Yes. Brilliant punny. <laughs> mm-hmm. Simmons works the arm with big clubbing blows, headbutts, arm ringers, and a hammerlock, 
but Orndorff responds with strikes and a sleeper hold. Simmons tries to drive Orndorff to the turnbuckle to break, but Orndorff slips free, shoves him into the turnbuckle, and suplexes him on the rebound. Great ring veteran move from Orndorff there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Simmons dodges a top rope Orndorff knee drop. Top rope moves are no longer DQs now. Yeah. That, that lasted very little time. <laughs> and works the knee with kicks and knee smashes. Jesse claims he, unlike Simmons, was a sportsman in the ring, drawing laughter from Tony. <laughs> yeah. Simmons puts a figure four leg lock on, but he's too close to the ropes and Orndorff immediately grabs them and retreats outside. Simmons follows, so Orndorff rams him into the commentary team monitor, then beats Simmons up outside and inside the ring, and works around a chin lock, interrupted only by a brief Simmons escape that ends when Orndorff boots him on a charge for two. They exchange blows as Jesse gets confused about Tony's nose, and Tony explains that he burns easily, so he always puts zinc oxide on his nose when he goes to the beach. Jesse doubts he ever goes in the sun at all. He will play a weird kind of vampire monster thing on a future Halloween Havoc, so there's that. That's true, yeah, yeah. Simmons earns two counts with a power slam, a sunset flip, a back elbow, and a suplex, but Orndorff pokes his eyes and tries a pile driver near the ropes. Simmons counters with a back body drop, but that sends Orndorff over the ropes to the floor, so Anderson rings the bell, disqualifying Simmons, and Orndorff wins. Simmons, not realizing that he's been disqualified, sends Orndorff back in and lands a top rope flying shoulder block for zero, as Anderson informs him of the DQ. Simmons is distraught. Orndorff, inadvisably, retrieves his belt and tries to hit Simmons with it, but Simmons ducks, decks him, and grabs the belt. Orndorff beats a hasty retreat as Anderson retrieves the belt from Simmons. Tony sympathizes with Simmons while Jesse says he got what he deserved. Thoughts on this one? That was pretty good. Um, my one complaint I would say is the pacing on this one. It's not a slow match, because I think slow is probably one it's overused as a complaint about wrestling matches, but I'd say methodical is probably more accurate. Oh, okay. Because it's one of those ones where, kind of like we had last year, we had a more experienced veteran, obviously in this case, an even more experienced veteran in Orndorff than last year with Simmons. It's definitely them working Orndorff pace. Orndorff probably lays the match out, I would I would assume, yeah. in the back. It's part of that. So for better or worse, this definitely is an Orndorff match, just with Ron Simmons sort of getting his big power moves in. I do like what he does with his times he has. His power slams are nice, and his good mm. power displays are move. One thing he's definitely picked up between this year and last year, he's picked up a lot more little things in the ring, just from, just from experience. He sells stun really well before he takes the uh, back suplex. Yes. To explain why he doesn't like punch his way out or try to counter it. Yeah, he he has definitely, like, he wasn't bad last year at all. No, no, he, he wasn't. But he has definitely improved this year. To, you can tell that's a very good point. Yeah, he gets a lot more of the little stuff, completing his performance style. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So first part, I think he does fine. For me, the pace is a little slow, which is, to be fair, is kind of a thing with the Wonder of Matches. I don't think it's like he can't work faster than I think it's he chose to. That's kind of his style he's used to. I think Wonder really works well with faster guys, or people that do more with like sudden bursts of speed. Like that match we, he had with um, Mudo, as I recall, being quite quite good. That was a good mm-hmm. contrast. Um, let me ask you on that. Do you think that that's bugging you a little bit just because it's the opening match? That's probably a factor, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's part of it. I mean, it isn't the first time I've noticed that in Orndorff match. It's not yeah. like it's 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 only changed, but yeah, I could I could see that being a factor. Yeah, 
just because to me, I was actually thinking um, when I was watching this, I was thinking these are bigger, slower moving guys, but they're actually keeping a pretty good pace. Mm-hmm. So I so I kind of wonder if it's just that there's in opening matches, you normally get such a quick pace because it's important to get the crowd charged up. Right. That this kind of highlights the difference because I felt like they were actually moving faster than I'm used to for these guys. Mm, okay. Because I think they kind of recognize over oh, the opening. Gotcha. I obviously generally don't like DQ finishes, but this was at least a creative way of doing it. Mm-hmm. It's because, for what reason, they didn't want Ron being champion. It's funny because he already was world champion briefly. You throw him lose, but this pecks him pretty well because the way it's done, his head is bent down in the Paladar position, so he can't see where he's at when he's doing the move. Yes. So it's not like with Steve Austin and Muda again, weirdly enough, where he's specifically throwing him out of the ring. To you know, get out, out of a move, or to get rid of him, he's just actually a basic counter out of that. And Orndorff takes advantage of that, making sure he goes over. Yeah, I, I I go both ways on on that. I think overall, I think like you, I'm not generally fond of DQ finishes. Mm. Um, I agree that this one was uh, was a good way of keeping Simmons strong in a loss. Um, and the other thing I kind of do like about it is that you know the idea of the match is that. If Orndorff gets disqualified, he'll lose the title. Mm-hmm. So they kind of build to the idea of, oh, this uh, this match is more dangerous for the heel, but that's the face that actually gets disqualified. Right. So it's kind of a nice inversion of expectations. Mm-hmm. The only problem that I ended up having with it was that they didn't really tease Orndorff potentially getting DQ'd anytime earlier in the match. Like, I think if they'd use that a little bit to build up the stipulation some more and then had this happen, it might yeah. have had a bigger impact. But yeah, as as far as the ending goes, I don't have as big a problem with this as I do with some other DQ finishes. It's it, the execution, I think, is what makes it work. As much as it, as much as it's gonna work for me, this is a good way of doing it. I'd say. Yeah, yeah. I generally felt this went pretty well. Um, like I said, I think it maintains a little bit of a quicker pace than you expect from these guys, though not as quick a pace as you uh, normally see in the opening slot. Kind of feel like if they'd switch this with the second match. Mm-hmm. then you might have had a, a faster-paced opening, and then this would be perfectly acceptable in the second slot. Yeah. There's some nice little touches to this match that show their familiarity with each other. They're definitely ready to counter each other's big moves and even ready with counters of counters at times. Yeah. The DQ finish is a nice twist ending. Um, I just wish that they'd played with the idea of the DQ a little bit before that, having Orndorff toe the line and get a warning or two, get all nervous about it, and then managed to pull off getting Simmons DQ'd instead would have helped. Well, see, the problem is they didn't have Nick Patrick doing it, and you need Nick Patrick and his big belling voice to threaten people to make that kind of thing work. Yeah. But still, I thought it was a solid opener. Mm -hmm. I agree. So, based on a promo we'll cover shortly after this, they build up to a match between Paul Orndorff and Ricky Steamboat, which would happen on the August 18th Clash of Champions event, it's about a month from this one, where Orndorff would lose a title to Steamboat. Sans belt, Orndorff would team up with the Equalizer, who we'll also see shortly after this. Oh, poor Paul Orndorff. Yeah, sadly, it's not Edward Woodward as the Equalizer. That would have been a much better match. <laughs> we cut to Tony and Jesse, and Jesse pokes at Tony's nose, still somehow confused despite Tony's earlier explanation. Tony builds up the upcoming matches, in particular highlighting the night's main event, Sting and Davy Boy Smith versus the Masters of the Powerbomb, Vader and Sid Vicious. 
Jesse says Sting and Davy Boy should have taken a retirement offer from Harley Race and Colonel Robert Parker and gone to Tahiti instead of fighting Vader and Sid. We're back to our second match, which is Marcus Alexander Bagwell and Two Cold Scorpio versus Tex Slazinger and Shanghai Pierce. Referee for this one is Nick Patrick. So the duo of Tex Slazinger and Shanghai Pierce came into WCW in late 1992. They came over from Sinton, Memphis, where they were tag-teaming. Tex was Leatherface. <laughs> really one of many wrestlers playing Leatherface in companies. There's a big one in Japan that was Colonel Kirshner, or Corporal Kirshner, excuse me. And uh, Pierce was there as Master Blaster. <laughs> yes. I don't know if he had a little person riding his shoulders, but I would assume he did at one point. <laughs> you can thank Jerry Lawler for that booking, because that was his territory in Memphis. Yeah. As to why these two teams are fighting, I don't have any story, unfortunately. The Peacock slash Network version of WCW Saturday Night has the episode, thankfully the one with the infamous mini-movie we'll cover later, and a little build-up, but then the other like three shows are just not there. Okay. Bagwell and Scorpio come out to Scorpio's theme, which is a little weird since they're a full-fledged tag team rather than a one-off pairing. I like their tights, though. Each has the same color pattern and their name— but the names are on the opposite colors from each other. It's a nice little touch. By the way, you know why they have that specific color pattern, right? I do not. This show took place on July 18th. Uh, July 25th was Mardi Gras. Gotcha. Gotcha. The Texans enter to some very nice cowboy film music, but Shanghai's name is misspelled on screen. Yes. That must be stock music that they have from the Turner Library, guys. It's gotta be, yeah. It's it's too good to be an actual WCW composition. It does say something about the tag team rankings, though, if you think about it. Because Tuco Scorpio's got his pretty famous song where the lady's singing about him, yeah. and how great he is. And then these two guys have just generic Western music. Doesn't even say their names at all. And and Bagwell has nothing. Well, yeah. Well, he's, he, can, he can at least coast on Scorpio. Yeah, I guess so. Shanghai, of course, wears a mask, reportedly because Dusty Rhodes felt he was too good-looking and would get cheered as a bad guy. Yes, this is true. You have to wonder how Tex felt about that. Yeah, a little bit, yes. Hey, Dusty, should I wear a mask too? Nah, you're fine. Yeah, yeah, you're good. Oh. Don't worry about it. Oh. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Jesse claims that if Tony hung out with him more, he'd get to meet more babes like the ones from the start of the show. Tony asks why Jesse doesn't invite him. Silence. <laughs> don't bring up topics you don't want to discuss, Jesse. <laughs> yes. Bagwell and Pyrrhus start. Pyrrhus yells about Texas and gets booed. The mask worked. Yeah. Bagwell yells Biloxi and gets big cheers. Bagwell can't shoulder block Pyrrhus down, but takes him down with a flying body breast for zero. Pierce rolls out, and Slazinger charges, but eats a double face buster from Bagwell and Scorpio. Bagwell kneels for Scorpio to jump off his back, but Scorpio screws up his footing and Pratt falls over the ropes onto the ramp. <laughs> yeah, great. The Texans quickly cover with stomps. Scorpio redeems himself a moment later with a nice rebound crossbody to Pierce. Slazinger and Scorpio now, and Slazinger beats him up and gets him up top, but Scorpio kicks him away and lands a second rope crossbody for two. Tagged Bagwell, who earns two off a double-team hip toss, works the arm, and earns another two with a suplex, but Pyrrhus hits Bagwell from the apron. Slazinger and Pyrrhus trade off beating Bagwell up, working the arm, though Bagwell earns two with a sunset flip. 
Slazinger punishes him with a massive clothesline for two. Mm-hmm. More two counts off of Pyrrhus' knee strike, Pyrrhus' monster powerbomb, and double-team Slazinger shoulder breaker and Pyrrhus' elbow drop. In between, they draw Scorpio in to distract the ref for some cheating. Bagwell dodges a charge and crawls through the Texan's legs to tag Scorpio. Scorpio beats up both Texans with punches, a flying sidekick, turnbuckle smashes, and a standing sidekick, and lands a top rope splash for one. Everybody in, and Scorpio and Bagwell fling the Texans into each other. Scorpio dropkicks Slashinger out over the ropes, and Jesse notes that really should be a DQ. He, he has a point. Mm-hmm. Also, it looked like Bagwell was going for a dropkick too, but either he was late or Scorpio went early, so Bagwell just kind of awkwardly stops. Yeah, he did like a little ha- like a little half jump, like he's about to go, yeah. Yeah, he's clearly prepping for it, but he's like, oh, oh, you already hit. <laughs> yeah. Bagwell back suplexes Pierce, and Scorpio hits a top rope 450 splash for the three count and the win. Bagwell and Scorpio celebrate quickly, then beat it before Slazinger can get after them with his bull rope. Thoughts on this one? It was a decent to good tag match, I think. Kind of like with Orndorff, there is a very old school feel to it, which I think stands out more in a tag match because, you know, the tag formula is very well established through 70s and 80s and into now in a 90s wrestling. Yeah. The long control spots, the hope spot, you know. The only thing we're missing was the, sadly, was the commando role. Although the crawl through the legs is, is a good backup. That's a good, that's another good classic spot. Yeah. 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 Knowing the career these guys, Slazinger and Pierce have, because they had him in WBF for a while after, and then WCW to some degree later, I can see why they worked as long as they did. Well, they're not great wrestlers. Like, they do have little bits there. Like, I think it's Shanghai who does that nice sort of gut wrench powerbomb move, which I really liked. At the same time, I can see why they never quite got to be like big stars. They're, they're good, but there's nothing really stand out with them. Mm-hmm. Other than just, you know, younger the crowd about Texas or Earth, they don't, like, do any extra things that, like, big heel t- tag teams would do, like we'll see later in the show. We've said this about a few people over the past few shows. They are very solid performers. Yeah. But not the ones that you're you're going to build the card around. Right. Exactly. Uh, I thought the pacing was pretty good here. Again, because it's the old school style, it's... Much more about the heels controlling the match and eventually into Scorpio's big hot tag. To his credit, he really does shine quite well here. Mm-hmm. They keep mathering a long time. He gets the good kicks. His splash is kind of underrated because he jumps and does the sort of uh, like a quarter turn to land properly. Yes. Yeah. And it's 450. What is it? Was it Jesse calls like a one and a half, I think, or something really weird? <laughs> yeah. I think, I, so. I think it's like they think it's like a one and a half flip or something. He calls yeah. Because I think, I think it's like a diving thing. The Ace 450 looks really nice. You can see why he gets famous for moves like that, for sure. In a way, the finish is a very telling example of Bagwell and Scorpio. Because Bagwell does a nice, solid back suplex, puts him right in the right spot, which is good but not flashy. And then, then there's tears Scorpio doing this cool flip and win the match. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesse loves to refer to Pierce and Slazender as Texicans. <laughs> yes. Did you ca- count how many times he said it? I did I- not. I did not. Four times. Okay. Four times in one match, he refers to the Texicans. Yeah. Well, that's that's still better than the got it like that count from New Blood Rising. Well, yes. That's true, yes. This didn't do very much to vary from the normal tag formula, but it was a perfectly fine example of that tag formula. Yeah. 
Bagwell does a good job as face in peril, and I liked how long it took the heels to actually get him meaningfully stunned. He even like fakes them out a couple times early on, acting more hurt than he is to retain advantage. Yeah, I can see that. He's almost, dare I say, likable in this match. He is. I, I feel dirty <laughs> for saying Buff Bagwell is likable, but... <laughs> I will say uh, during the intro, I feel like I can say, as a white guy, I can say this. He has very white guy rhythm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's more on rhythm with with uh, with Scorpio in the dance than uh, the public enemy ever are with each other. But they're in rhythm with with themselves, Bob. With e- each one individually, yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. Marching to the beat of their own drummer, yeah, yes. Not listening to their music at all. <laughs> no, 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 too busy. I think the heels needed a little bit more hold variety for their arm work. Mm. But they tagged in and out quickly, so the match never really got slow. There's a few minor botches here and there in the match, but nothing that really spoils it. The ending is nothing surprising, but Scorpio's 450 gives it a very nice, impressive actual finish. Yeah. So perfectly acceptable tag wrestling here. Nothing special, but no complaints. Mm-hmm. So going back to what I said before, the tag team with Paul Orndorff and the Equalizer, that match is in fact evolving to go Scorpio and Marcus Bagwell. Sadly, it's not Denzel Washington replacing the Equalizer in that one as well. Again, would it be a better match? Oh, yeah. That'd be better. The Texicans, as they are well-known, uh, would take part in a singles match. Interestingly, they picked Shanghai Pierce for a singles match, which probably I would have picked as well, to be fair, based on this, at least on this one match. I mean, he has the sexy one, so... Obviously, yes. <laughs> uh, he, he wrestles a singles match against Ice Train at Fall Brawl, same year. Okay. Tony throws to Missy Hyatt, who is with Paul Orndorff and The Equalizer, later to be known as Dave Evad Sullivan, because he's dyslexic, you see. It's hilarious. There's that sensitivity training, WCW. Mm-hmm. I'm here with Mr. Wonderful, Mr. Television Champion himself and The Equalizer, but you know what? It looked to me in the first match that Ron Simmons almost took that title away from you. And as a matter of fact, I know there's a lot of men in WCW that want a chance of taking that title away from you. Listen, Missy, now you know why they call me the John Wayne of professional wrestling. First of all, first of all, I play straight down the middle by the rules. And if it gets tough out there, I'm just a man that can do it. And you know something, Ron Simmons, Ought to be fined. He ought to be penalized. He ought to be kicked out of the w- WCW. He deliberately, he deliberately threw me out over the top of the rope. He knew I had him beat when I picked him up for the pile driver. And he's not a man. He chokes just like I said he would. Florida State always choked, and they're gonna keep on choking. And you know something? Right here is my friend, the Equalizer. And you saw exactly what Rod Simmons did. Well, this man right here is going to get even with a lot of people because he's my good friend. And another thing about you saying a lot of people are wanting a shot at this title. Yeah, like uh, Mr. Ricky Steamboat, You mean the old man with the gray hair? Matter of fact, we call him the old man at the sea because he's gray-headed. He's got to put black stuff all over his head. He's balding. Worthy of this championship belt. Well, the champion... Well, now let's go back to the ring to Gary Michael Capetta. <laughs> the Equalizer. 
had absolutely no idea what to do with his hands during this interview. No. He keeps swinging his right arm like he's trying to swat an annoying housefly through the entire interview. Mm -hmm. It looks ridiculous, and it is very, very distracting. If you want to picture listening to this interview, go back, listen to the, the interview again, and have a friend stand just off to the left side of your vision and continue swatting with their with their arm for the entire thing. It will be impossible for you to pay attention to anything that Orndorff is saying. Yes. <laughs> that may potentially be a little bit of a good thing, though, because as for the promo, it's not Orndorff's best work. He starts off fine with his riff about Simmons and his faux offense at how horrible and evil Simmons' tactics were compared to his noble and honorable self, but his Ricky Steamboat old man in the sea joke goes absolutely nowhere. Mm. And then he seems to get pretty flustered towards the end and kind of loses train of thought on there. Yeah. Between that and the Equalizer's antics, this didn't go horribly, but it didn't go very well. He also says he's a John Wayne of pro wrestling. Is that a thing people have ever said about him? I, I guess it is now. If by people, you mean Paul Orndorff himself. Yeah. This is the guy who refers to old Ricky Steamboat, who is in fact four years younger than he is. Yes, and this is the guy who I believe our friend Garrett refers to as Muscle Grandpa. Yes, correct. <laughs> when he starts showing up a little bit later. That's, uh, yeah, and he comes back in like 2000, I believe, yeah, <laughs> that one match, yeah. Because he has a very old man face, and then he, he's as jacked then, to be fair. He's as jacked like seven years later. Yes. If not more than he is now, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's a little bit rich for him to be criticizing Ricky Steamboat for being old. A little bit, yeah. I kind of feel bad for Equalizer, which is a few times we're going to say this, like, ever. Because I, I don't think it's necessarily his fault. Like, they, they gave him no... They seem to give him no notes. Yeah. It's either like that they, or he's never been on camp before, which is also... I, it does sound like... The, I mean, Tony, when he enters the segment, says, Missy's there with Paul Orndorff and someone I don't recognize. Yes. So I feel like this is very, very early in Equalizer's run. Yes. And yeah, I agree. It feels like they gave him basically no direction other than stand there and kind of look angry. Mm-hmm. But I, I still don't know why he went to and swatted the camera or swat at an annoying bug three feet in front of your face. Well, that's the thing. They can't even keep the narrative straight because Tony says, this person I recognize, the Missy introduces him as the equalizer. And then at the end of the promo, Orndor introduces his friend the equalizer if Missy yeah. didn't say his name. I mean, to be fair, I think Missy introducing him as the Equalizer is fine, because you can picture they came out on stage and she said, oh, who's this? And he said, oh, that's the Equalizer. So Yeah, I guess. It, 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 I think it's because it comes so quickly in sequence. Yeah, yeah. Tony goes, I don't know who this person is. And he goes, here's the Equalizer. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> Our third match is Eric, that dropkick, Watts, Aww. versus Lord Stephen Regal with Sir William. The referee for this match is Randy Anderson. Jesse oddly suggests that Watts will struggle to get to the ring because they don't have a beach in Oklahoma where Watts is from. What? Okay. Watts hands out tiny American flags to fans as he walks down the ramp. Sir William brings out Lord Regal, who, as ever during this time, has his amazing red, blue, and gold cape. Oh, yes. Absolutely terrific. Mm Mm-hmm. Regal looks besmirched by the very concept of wrestling in Mississippi, as Sir William waves a tiny Union Jack. Watts waves a slightly larger U.S. flag in response. It's the Battle of the Tiny Flags. Yes. 
Tony says, however this ends, Watts will learn something wrestling Regal. Hopefully, that'll be how to throw a dropkick. <laughs> Regal gets a series of arm holds, but Watts reverses a wrist lock into his own and holds on through a Regal monkey flip. Jesse says they have great scientific wrestlers in Oklahoma because there's nothing else to do there. <laughs> oh. They continue trading arm holds, sneaking in rare strikes, until Regal flips Watts to the mat and forces his wrist down for a couple two counts. Watts bridges free, but Regal levers him down from a top wrist lock for a couple more two counts, then flips him to the mat again for two. Watts rolls over for one, and Regal rolls back for two. Jesse and Tony both criticize the crowd for not applauding. Yeah. I agree. This is actually really good. Watts works around a hammerlock and gets two with a roll-up. Regal ankle lock, then several hard European uppercuts and forearm strikes, but Watts dodges the knee drop, kicks the leg, and slaps on the STF. But he's too close to the ropes, and Sir William sneaks in a vicious slap to the face, while Anderson isn't looking. Watts yells at Sir William, so Regal forearms him from behind and rolls him up, pulling the tights for the three count and the win. Regal celebrates with Sir William in the ring as Tony decries his tactics. Thoughts on this? So, this is kind of what, one of those matches you have to be two, of two minds of, I think. <laughs> if you really want to see the fundamentals of how you can work arm holes and leg holes, you know, work through holes, and you're really into that catch-as-catch-can British wrestling, which obviously Regal is very familiar with, then this is a really amazing match. If you're into traditional pro wrestling, then it's a match where they just kind of roll around and admittedly creative holds to, unfortunately, zero heat from the crowd. Yeah. The problem is that this match is like seven minutes long, and like five minutes of that of the match is this. And because the crowd's not into it, it just really suffers the whole thing. Crowd interaction really is a, is a factor in matches. Yeah. But the thing is, so once it actually gets into would-be second gear... That's when they go right to the STF and then the slap and the pin. It's like, once the match is really starting, you're like, oh, it's over. <laughs> I will say on the fundamentals there, they did a good job of positioning where the hole was. So uh, yes. Sir William could hit him. Ray Anderson actually did a good job in this match of clearly not being aware of what's happening because he, he's looking away from it. They just hit everything really well. And even just the basic thing of Regal when he does the roll-up, he pulls him at a slightly higher angle, if you notice. So it's not just the normal you know, grab and roll spin over. So yes. it's just higher angle, so it's even harder to get out of. And of course, having the tights helps as well. Yeah. And uh, Sir William's slap is a really good one. Too. Yeah. He does a nice, solid-looking slap there that you can see being like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm breaking the hold for that. <laughs> no, absolutely, yeah. It's a shame there's just no heat for this match. Once they get past the Channing USA at Regal for a bit, they just... They don't seem to have any interest in Eric Watts doing anything. Yeah. Really, even when he's doing good, legitimate, fundamental wrestling with a guy who can also do good, legitimate, fundamental wrestling. Yeah. I'm a bit surprised to say that this was quite a good mat wrestling match. With Regal, I expect that, but Eric Watts really surprised me here, keeping up with Regal quite nicely and showing a good variety of holds and escapes. They kept this almost entirely focused on counter-wrestling and holds, but with enough different tactics and holds to keep it interesting. Though the crowd, as you said, the lack of the crowd response really does hurt it. Mm -hmm. I think if you can get past that and yeah. find your own enjoyment in the match, it's really, really good. I still maintain that they didn't really get the match going, though. 
they did. I don't know. I, I know they did about five. They did four or five minutes for me of let's build up how the two people are even, or if anything, Watt can out wrestle Regal. Then let's get into the faster paced, more aggressive, like non chain wrestling part of the match. Then build to a finish. I think I, I agree that there needed to be a little bit more build before like the STF, mm. but. I feel like the chain wrestling was the match, and I don't have a problem with that in this one. I think if they'd done it as that they chain wrestle and they just like didn't go for the STF part and actually had like one of them finally get a roll up on the other during that and get the pin, I would have been totally cool with that because they'd done such a good job of building a a great counter wrestling thing because it's like in contrast to the normal pro wrestling style because the normal pro wrestling style is, you know, you do that stuff for the first two to three minutes of the match, and then somebody hits somebody else and you get into the normal pro-style stuff. But this, they decided to make it more of a amateur slash, you know, scientific map-based wrestling match. And I wouldn't want every match to be that way, but it made it quite unique to see them just saying, no, that is our match. Mm. If this wasn't Eric Watts fighting Regal, and got someone else that's a more established star, if anyone else could keep that same kind of pace and that sort of style... Or that had a personality. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> someone where the crowd cares about doing the same match, I think it's a different story. Yeah. Or someone who aggressively did not have a personality, such as if you did this three years later and it's Lord Regal versus Dean Malenko mm. doing exactly this match, then I think the crowd is more into it. And yeah, it maybe has a better. But I mean, I really feel like I can't fault the wrestlers for that. I actually have to fault the crowd for this one. I mean, I, I I agree to a point. It, it ultimately is still Eric Watts doing all this, and you know, not to bragging on the guy, but he never made that connection with the people. That's so true. Yeah. Ultimately, people booking the match and the people, I guess, assumably Watts and Regal laying out the match and whatever dudes to help them, had to know what they're dealing with, and they chose to do this match differently. So, better or worse, they picked this style of match. It didn't work with the crowd, unfortunately. Yeah. I just I I really do feel like it's it's a little bit more on the crowd on this one just cuz I I've, I've seen other cases where you know you had the crowd not being into someone starting out and they're not doing necessarily any like appeals to the crowd or anything but the crowd does come around to them just because the action is good and and for me that was the case with this match it's like I I really did feel uh considerably better about Eric Watts after this match than before it I will say this I this is one of the cases where I do try to think of ways that this could work better, like, and I want it to work better. Like, if Watts has a good popular face manager, mm-hmm. he has a manager to come out because they know Sir William Cheat, for instance. They could lay out a challenge to Regal saying, you know, you say he's a great technical wrestler. Well, my, my protege, Eric Watts here, he's an expert, you know, he can beat you at, at your own game. Make it clear to the crowd, this is the match we're going to do. He's going to try and out, actually out-wrestle this guy scientifically. Yeah. But I think it's because they just went in and did this match on the show. It's run by other people not doing anything else like that. For better or worse, it suffers and thrives by comparison. Yeah. Yeah, really, I think my only actual complaint about it is just I felt like the STF needed a little bit more build. Yeah. Um, Even Jesse notes it feels like he tries that quite quickly. Yeah. He kicks the leg once or twice, I think, and then goes right for it. Where if he'd done one or two more leg holds before it and then went to that, I think it'd be better. Yeah, it's funny, actually, uh, it's like, to that point, Tony in the next match, actually, with different wrestlers, he retroactively tries to defend Watts, it seems like. 
Because, well, that's what the match, but he's talking about the armbar Max Payne does. And he says uh, the armbar, like the SGF, is a quick submission hold. Yeah, true. Yeah. So he, he he's like, like he, I think he realized, he's like, you know, what if I could help him a little bit here? Doing, doing his part. Yeah. But yeah, for the time they got, I thought they built a unique and fun match here that stood out nicely, and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, like, like I said, the actual action is fine. It's just, for me, there's stuff missing here. Hmm. They, they start to build up to the next part of the match, and then it just ends. As noted, the next TV champion post-August would be Ricky Steamboat. Well, his next challenger would appear, and that would be Stephen Regal. Okay. It is worth noting there's a certain bit of irony here because the finals of the TV title tournament back in March was Paul Orndorff's Eric Watts, and Eric Watts lost. So to clarify, the guy that beat Eric Watts is then challenging for the TV title. Against the guy that beat Paul Orndorff? Yes. Regal's challenging Steamboat, and Steamboat beats Orndorff, who beat Watt. So there's a, there's a certain... Yeah. It's, it's like, you know what it's like. Hmm. It's like they've held a mini-tournament again. <laughs> they did, kind of, yeah. <laughs> An unofficial tournament over the course of several months. Yes. Uh, as far as Watt goes, it's an interesting mixed bag, so bring up on him. So on TV, he would start... Unfortunately, he would basically lose every match he had for a while. That said, on the house circuit, he wrestled a series of matches against Chris Benoit. Oh, wow. In which he won every single one of them. Okay. So at house shows, he's beating Benoit, and on TV, he's losing to, you know, Paul Orndorff and, you know, random people. Before I saw this match, I would have zero interest in seeing that match. Yeah. After seeing this match, I'm like, that could actually be kind of good. Yeah. Just don't let him throw a dropkick. But <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I, I could actually see that kind of working. It is notable that Watts does have a dark match before Fall Brawl, which he wins. But it's also a dark match, so if you win in a match no one sees, is that actually... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a losing streak gimmick if no one actually sees you win a match. Right, yes. Tony advertises Fall Brawl, featuring War Games, the match beyond. Note that Fall Brawl isn't for another two months, but apparently we already know something will get serious enough for someone to challenge someone to a War Games match. Mm-hmm. Price of having to advertise early, I guess. Yeah, it's a thing. It's like people talked about recently with WWE. Yeah. They announced their calendar schedule, and they say, you know, October, for instance, is Hell in the Cell pay per view. Yeah. So then, hopefully, and then not every year they did a great job of this. They'd have to build up a feud through the next two three months to make it logical that someone goes, "Let's go to a Hell in the Cell match." Yeah. Because no matter, no matter what the story is going, at least two people were going to have Hell in the Cell matches. That's that's the struggle with with those like. Event matches should be things like the Royal Rumble, where there doesn't have to be a straight storyline for them other than everyone questing for the title shot. Yeah, you build on the existing story, you build feuds with that yeah. inside the match, but they don't need them for the match, correct? Matches like War Games or Hell in the Cell should be ones that grow naturally out of an existing feud, so you really can't advertise those months in advance as, yes, we will definitely have this match type at the show, or it kind of calls into your question your storytelling a bit. Yeah. As promised, Jesse interviews the winner of the last match, Lord Stephen Regal, accompanied by Sir William and his tiny Union Jack. A sign in the crowd proclaims, Biloxi welcomes the WCW. <sighs> They've even got the crowd doing it now, Al. I, I noticed, yes. <laughs> I noticed. I didn't catch that on the first watch, and I was like, oh no, <laughs> there it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
with Lord Stephen Regal, who has come to us all the way from England. And Lord Stephen, it is indeed my pleasure to have a blue blood to be able to interview here at Beach Blast in Biloxi, Mississippi. Lord Stephen. Right Honorable Mayor Ventura, am I correct? That's correct. It makes a change from that imbasonic fool Giovanni. Now, Eric Watts was supposed to be the all-American athlete, some kind of brilliant amateur career. I didn't even break a sweat beating him. I noticed before that Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff retained his world's TV title. Now, as everybody knows, I, his lordship, am on a, a mission, I should think you could call it, from the Queen, and I am going to take back the world's TV title, so, Mr. Wonderful, I'd watch out, because as the great Winston Churchill said, we will fight them on the beaches, we will fight them in the trenches, nowhere is safe when the Queen has sent his lordship on a mission. And William, I hope you have those crumpets toasted well. Let's go. Thank you, Lord Stephen. Lord Stephen Regal, all the way from England. Let's go to you now, Eric Bischoff. Quite a nice short promo from Regal here with a ton of personality. Oh, yeah. I love how he managed to claim, with a straight face, that he did not break a sweat beating Watts, while visibly dripping with sweat. It's great, yeah. That is some willpower, dude. Mm-hmm. I also loved him taking a moment out to completely unnecessarily insult Tony Schiavone as well. Yes, yeah. I was kind of disappointed that Tony didn't say anything. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, oh, okay. <laughs> He's just used to it, receiving abuse from people now, I guess. That's true. After spending time with Jesse Ventura. Yeah, it's Stockholm Syndrome at this point. It's interesting to see a heel cut a promo against another heel, too. A Regal-Orndorff matchup would have some interesting dynamics. It would. I could see Orndorff getting cheered as the American, but I could also see Regal ending up cheered just for sheer technical prowess. And either guy's good enough to then take that and start wrestling more face or heel, depending on the reaction. Uh, yeah, for sure. That would genuinely be a fascinating match to see. No, agreed, yeah. I like that his gimmick uh, here is that he's on an official mission from the Queen to, uh, <laughs> yeah. go, to go win wrestling titles. The British crown cares so much about WCW. Yeah. That she wants him to go and win specifically the world's TV title. Not the world title, not the, you know, other world title, not the uh, tag titles or anything like the world's TV title. I guess she just watches a lot of television and she really, really wants that specific belt. Yes, the the queenship, uh, he watched lots of telly. Yep, yep. (laughs) Yeah, I I like that he, he does this while... Like, following a match like that is quite impressive, yeah. Yes, I, I was thinking of that, too, that, uh, yeah, this was quite a energetic match that they just went through. Mm-hmm. And Jesse meets him at ringside immediately after the match with only the length of the fall brawl ad between that match and this promo. And Regal, I mean, sure, maybe sounds a little bit winded, but... Uh, sure. Like, he's capable of doing that. I was thinking, watching this, like, if someone came to talk to me right after that kind of match performance all you would hear is <gasps> well i i want the title <sighs> yeah well you see all the time when um the big marathon like the boston marathon the new york marathon yeah they yeah they're, they're waiting at the thing and they try to talk to the person right afterwards and you know they usually give them a little break yeah 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 
So impressive work in that regard and being able to not only talk, but also put together a pretty good and uh, a promo that actually makes sense as a promo. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, he, he's got a member. He's my character. He's like goal. Yeah. You know, I had the, I had the reference to Churchill because I'm British. Yeah. <laughs> we go back up to Eric Bischoff on stage and he throws to a brief video package setting up Max Payne versus Johnny B. Bad, showing Payne firing Bad's own Bad Blaster into Bad's face. That's bad. Mm-hmm. So our fourth match is Max Payne with Norma Jean, his guitar, versus Johnny B. Bad in a grudge match. Referee for this one is Nick Patrick. As noted at the previous Class of Champions show, there was a match book between Max Payne and Johnny B. Bad. But instead of having the match, they had a confrontation on stage, and Mr. Payne, as actually actually be called, fired the confetti gun in his face. And I guess the dry ice involved in that apparently burned him, is the idea we're going with. <laughs> I, I know it was the time with the confetti gun, the most dangerous of weapons. Yes. Maybe he got a little bit of confetti in his eye. and you know, Oh, geez, yeah. Na- nasty paper cut. That's... It always feels bad when you, like, your eye is, like, in severe pain. You go and, like, you realize there's, like, a single eyelash just fell off your eye. Under your eye, like, oh, is that with all that's all that was? Maybe yeah. that's what happened. He, like, it's, he got blasted with the confetti gun, and that blew his eyelashes out of alignment. So oh. one got in his eye, and it's just, oh, my gosh, yeah, the pain. <laughs> yeah, there you go. But yeah, so that's the build-up to why uh, there's a this rematch now, as opposed to happening earlier. And as we'll see, Johnny Bad has a uh, has some new gear uh, in relation to the injury he apparently got. Yes. Max Payne, introduced as from the state of Euphoria, plays his own guitar riff for his entrance music. He is quite good. They even sync it up to his pyro, which is a nice touch. That was nice, yeah. I may not be the biggest fan of Payne as a wrestler, but he genuinely is a pretty good guitarist. Yeah. Bad, for his part, comes out to his ridiculous theme song (laughs) with a pink feather boa and a hilariously over-the-top feathery mask. Yes. Jesse oddly claims that Johnny now has a real live boa, which would be a snake, not feathers. Uh, Yeah, I noticed that. I think he was trying to say like he... They're real feathers or something. Yeah, like he had, he had the cheap stuff you buy from like a costume store. <laughs> Obviously, back in the day, uh, he would, would wear a lot of them himself. Yeah. I do like Jesse taking the time to note the feather boa, considering, yeah, like you said, he used to wear those himself. But but yeah, it's just a weird depiction of it, Jesse. Yeah. Well, he, he's basically up Johnny Bad with Jake Snake Roberts. It happens. Bad fires off the Bad Blaster and sadly takes off the feathery portion of the mask, leaving just a flowery pink one. I really wanted to see him try to wrestle in that huge thing. Yeah, I kind of want to see him get, like, when, like, the punches start, see if the feathers come off, yeah. <laughs> yes. It's, it's like, it's full-on crazy Mardi Gras mask, right? Again, yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a week early, yeah. Yeah, the most elaborate type of oh, thing no, you see it, for those. It's, it's almost past Mardi Gras and full Carnival, yeah. Bad takes Payne down and lands punches, then earns two with a crossbody, but Payne dodges another, and Bad flies over the turnbuckle to the floor. Bad crawls back in, and Payne wears him down with a suplex, a slam, an eye poke, an armbar, and brack breaker per Tony. Yes. Glad it's not just me that flubs my lines. (laughs) Payne locks on the painkiller, but he's too close to the ropes, so Bad easily reaches them. I think that's where you said uh, Tony starts to try to make excuses for the STF. Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> he does, yeah. Payne holds on nearly to the five count. 
Payne earns two with a suplex, but Bad Sunset flips him for two. Payne easily catches a crossbody and slams Bad. Bad hits, if we are generous, a dropkick to send him over the top rope to the floor, then vaults onto him, but Payne flings him to the ring post. Bad, though, dodges a clothesline, so Payne hits the post. Back in, Bad goes up top, but slips off, but quickly gets to the second rope for a flying body press for the three count and the win. Good uh, quick recovery by Bad there, as he only had a moment to work before Payne was going to be in position. Mm -hmm. Bad celebrates like he just won a much longer match. This was less than five minutes long. Jesse says he got lucky. Thoughts on this one? Yeah, as you said, it's definitely a pretty rushed encounter, but ultimately it's just all right. It's weird, because I I get the idea of the fast start, for sure. Even as silly as the idea that he shot him with a confetti gun in the face, they're still playing it up like it's a blood feud. This is a vengeance match, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the official term they used for it again? It was a... Grudge match, yeah. But then there was a special grudge. Did they say a special grudge match? They probably did. I think think we know that. We're like, what's a special grudge match? (laughs) Well, and also that's weird, because it's like, they list it as a grudge match or special grudge match or what have you. This is clearly not actually a no-DQ match, either. Correct. Because they're, they're threatening DQs through the entire thing, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I get the idea of the fast start, and I absolutely have no problem with the counter they get into, you know, where he's knocked out of side, and then Max takes control. Max still, at this point, doesn't quite have the complete look he's going for. He looks really good coming to the ring, but once the jacket's gone, the guitar is gone, everything's kind of slightly mismatched. It's like regular t-shirt over actual, like, ring gear for the pants. Yes. Yeah, he needs something different for the top. Yes, for sure. Or to commit to the full rock, rock and roll look he's going for, right, not yeah. the wrestling. It's like singlet bottoms, basically. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And when his shirt's also very busy. It has like his name and logo, and like it has like five logos in the front. Like fashion victim on. and stuff. You're, yeah. yeah, yeah. There's too much going on in that shirt. Which, yes, you are a fashion victim, and it's clearly your fault. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> you can't focus on any one thing he's wearing. It's too much. Other than the ending, I thought they worked fairly clean. The landing the outside was a little off. Uh, the problem with the ending, I feel like Max must have been late. Bad is ready to go, and then Max kind of takes a couple steps the other direction. Like, if he had jumped off and he was ready, he'd probably been fine. And he's not ready, so then he sort of adjusts quickly. To me, it looked like he went up, but he went up a little bit too fast and lost his balance. Like, he, he got up there with too much momentum still and kind of slips. But then he really genuinely recovers really, really oh, fast. I was impressed with that, that he didn't let it rattle him. Yeah, I wasn't sure if it was that or... Cause it looked kind of like Max was there, and then he sort of took a step away. So then he like has to adjust there. But, but yeah, I'm not entirely sure. Who's the fault in this or in this? The question I have about the ending is, why does the crossbody suddenly work as a super effective move? Yeah. Because he just caught one like a minute and a half earlier. And like Nagovin nothing, he just caught him and slammed him down. Yeah, I guess, I mean, you can say he he does look like he's reeling a little bit at that moment, but mm-hmm. yeah, it is a little weird for that to be the finishing move. If this was like a tag match, you could have um, whoever had been Bad's partner do the classic, you know, getting your hands and knees behind him thing. Yes. That, or you do the really impressive crossbody, like you do a Ricky Steamboat crossbody, or, you know, a young Randy Orton crossbody, then I get that as a finish, but yeah. It's just weird that, like, suddenly this wins the match for him. Like, oh, okay. Yeah, you could have sort of lead into the boxing thing, for instance. Like, you could have, like, Max Payne goes to powerbomb him, and, and once he's got him up, you know, he gets a good, like, right hand and knocks him down, yeah. and he falls over. Something like that. Yeah, and that's where they kind of start going with him with, uh, when it's later in his run in, like, 95. You start seeing them building up the, hey, he's actually a Golden Gloves champion. Correct. 
Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, for me, this was short and not terribly varied, with a lot of punching, but it was quite good punching. As I noted, Bad is a former Golden Gloves champion, so he does know how to make his punches look good. Payne moves slowly, but the size difference helped make him look quite powerful, and his easy catch of the crossbody mid-match was cool. Nothing really special here, this needed to either be more vicious or more complex, but as short as it was, it didn't overstay its welcome. Mm-hmm. I would say I was surprised. I was doing a little research on Max Payne. I didn't realize he had much like legit wrestling background before he shows up hmm. here. He actually trained in New Japan. Oh, okay. Back in the 80, late eighties, with weirdly enough, the guy come up not in the show, but he's come up twice now. Reference Chris Benoit. Okay. It's weird because he has like legit shoot sort of wrestling background. He has his size, but then they lean into like his rock and roll stuff, and he has all these patterns and things going on, and yeah. you kind of lose what he could really be doing well, unfortunately, and all that. Yeah, it kind of feels like a guy where they've got a lot of ideas for what he could be, but they never quite settle on something. Yeah. Fittingly, there would be a rematch on television a few weeks later, which would be a no-DQ match. Eh, that would have made sense tonight. Yes. Uh, that match would go to Max Payne. So that would lead to the next Clash of Champions show, which again is in August, which would have a mask versus guitar match, which bad one that's stripping Max Payne of his guitar. Oh, Norma Jean, no. He can buy a new one with all the money he apparently won off the uh, lawsuit (laughs) over his name. Oh, right. Yeah. Over the uh, Rockstar game. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, Max Payne, yeah. They didn't release a settlement, but the fact they didn't release a settlement tells you it's probably a lot. Yes. (laughs) That's usually how that works. As Jesse pokes at his nose, Tony builds up the upcoming Iron Man match and tag title match. Tony says this edition of the Horseman may be new, but if he were in a tag match, there'd be nobody better to have on his side than Arn Anderson. Jesse says the Hollywood Blondes will still retain their titles. And Tony gives us another Let's Go to the Ring. He's so generous. <laughs> what is this stuff on your nose, would you Shavani? Get, would you get off of this? It's gross. Look at it. Ugh. Somebody get the hook. Let's go to the ring. <laughs> yeah, nice inflection on that one, too. Let's yes. go to the ring. A little up, upward inflection at the end. <laughs> He's so aggravated. Yes. Our fifth match is the Horsemen, Arn Anderson and Paul Roma, versus the Hollywood Blondes, that's Stunning Steve Austin and Fly and Brian Pillman, for the Blondes WCW World Tag Team Championship. Referee for this one is Randy Anderson. Uh, Storyline? Uh, Yes, at the last pay-per-view, which we've already covered thanks to our weird schedule, we were introduced to the new Four Horsemen, which included the addition of Paul Roma, fresh off being a mid-card heel pretty much his entire career in WWF, which was definitely not a choice that he's suddenly in the, I guess, top faction in the company, brought in in the, I guess, what later be known as the Randy Orton role as the young up-and-coming guy that's going to lead the company, win all the world titles, and do super well. I mean, to be fair, when you're bringing someone in to get him exposure, you probably don't choose a guy that already has exposure. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, so the idea is now that the group has, has been reformed, their goal is to, of course, win all the gold, because that's what they're known for. At their peak, they'd have you know world champion Ric Flair, TV champion R. Anderson, tag champions. You'd have, you know, sometimes you have some version with Wyndham and, uh, oh, blue blank on people now, but yeah. <laughs> At their peak, they'd hold all the gold and have the top manager and J.J. Dillon. Yeah. So they're just going for the glory again, which is shown in the show because they're going for both the tag titles and the NWA world title in one show. Uh, worth noting, at the last class champions again, 
there would be a tag team title match between the Forthman and the Hollywood Blondes. Although this case, it was Ric Flair and Anderson against the Blonde for the titles. Both teams would have a pinfall, so the final decision is what mattered. And unfortunately, someone would run in and cause a DQ, which would technically give the final fall to the Horsemen. But apparently, because that third fall was disqualification, that means they didn't win the titles. Champion's advantage still applies even in a two out of three falls match. Yeah. I guess at least it wasn't the first fall, and then like, the rest of the match is pointless. Right, yeah. Like with poor Ron Simmons and the 10-minute time limit. <laughs> yeah, right. It just seems weird that you have one pinfall, but it doesn't matter because the second one is just called. Yeah, it, it is. It, it's know. a strange it's a strange rule interaction where you kind of feel like maybe that should explicitly be waived for a two out of three falls match. Right. I mean, you could have him lose via count out. You have Flair be distracted by what happens and the call of the ring, and then they definitively lose a second fall. But it's not been pinned. But it's in a way that doesn't really hurt them, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's just weird that you can win a two or three falls match, but because the second fall is CQ, it doesn't count. I don't know. Yeah. It's WCW. The horsemen are out first, wearing t-shirts that look more like advertisements for a horse riding camp than a tag team. Yeah. <laughs> a person in the crowd has a way better shirt, referencing the return of the four horsemen that looks like very uh, apocalyptic themed. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah it's like, it looks like a metal album cover, kind of, or something. It does, yeah. Yeah. Their theme song is pretty good, but nowhere near the epic mid-90s theme that they'll later have. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Hollywood Blondes have a great look with their starry vests. Crowd signs cannot agree on whether you spell their name with or without an E in blonde. I was wondering that, too, because on the back of their, their trunks, it's, there's no E. Yeah, officially, according to their vests, it's without an E. Okay, there you go. I love Arn Anderson, by the way, but he really needs to rethink pure white short tights as a wrestling outfit. Yeah. It looks like either underwear or a diaper. <laughs> yeah, it's because it, it's, if it were to say, but they're not tight enough. Because they have a little bit of bagginess to them, and that's why you get that effect. Yeah. I think if he just added some red stripes on the sides to go along with, uh, he's got red on like his knee pads and stuff. Right. If he just added some red stripes on the sides of the tights, I think it would look way better. It'd complete the look. You know what he needs? Uh, the really sides together. Um, have a four on the left and right side of the trunks, <laughs> and then have a four on both of his boots. There you go, yeah. He's a four by four. Exactly. He's reliable and steady. <laughs> Roma and Austin start as Pillman yells at the crowd. The crowd chants for the horsemen, and Austin mockingly directs them. Austin antagonizes Roma, and Roma slugs him hard in the face. Jesse wonders what he'd done, quote, in this matchup to deserve that. I think we just saw. <laughs> but, but nice setting of condi conditions there. He's very careful to say, during this match, what has he done? <laughs> yeah, there's a brief pause, too, where he says, what has he done? In this in match. In this match. <laughs> yeah. And Tony's like, yeah, nothing. And Jesse said, all the other matches are totally independent. <laughs> Every match is unique. You can't punish him for other things. <laughs> that kind of kills the whole, let's build these, these feuds over multiple matches and multiple shows, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Every show is a tabula rasa, blinks like. So, so what such wonderful heel uh, excuse making, though. Just oh, yeah, no. <laughs> he commits to it. I'll give him that. Pillman in, and he tells Anderson to check Roma's elbow pad, then seems to hide something in his own tights. Tag to Arn, who mocks Pillman's trademark rolling cameras taunt, and counters an Austin charge with an angry glare. <laughs> oh, yeah. I love that. He just looks at Austin, collapses in the corner, is like, oh my gosh, don't hurt me, <laughs> runs away. 
Arn pulls Pillman's hair to throw him down, and the crowd denies Arn did anything. Should not have made the crowd your enemy, Pillman. (laughs) Speaking of the crowd, one dude is dressed just like Scott Hall will when he shows up in 1996. Yes. Even has kind of similar hair. It's really weird. Yeah, that denim sleeveless vest and everything. Yeah. I I swear that when I first caught a glimpse of him, I thought, oh, it's Scott Hall. Yeah, like, wait, that's way too early. Way, uh, he's over in the WWE. It's either too early or too late. (laughs) True, yes. Pillman tags Austin, who immediately gets arm-dragged. Arm-dragged? Yeah, I'd go with that. Austin back-body drops Arn and hits forearm drops for one counts and a two count. Jesse jokes that Arn is like Jaja Gabor, because he's had so many tag partners, like Jaja had many wives. Tony notes that Gabor had husbands. Austin offers Arn a handshake, and Arn agrees, then immediately beats him up. Tag to Roma. The commentators note that Roma and Arn, the less experienced team, are actually showing better teamwork right now, and also cheating with closed fist punches. Horseman gonna horseman. Exactly. Austin pulls the hair and gets Roma in a shoulder-mounted bear hug, but Roma awkwardly levers over for a sunset flip for two. I'm not actually sure if that was even intended to be a shoulder bear hug, or if Roma just like didn't get enough momentum to complete the flip at first. Yeah. It's just Austin doing a great job covering. Now that you say that, I'm not sure myself. I, I didn't think of that, but yeah, that's a good point. Because it, it, like, it looks like an actual move that Austin ends up doing, but it kind of feels like that was supposed to be a, a smoother flip. I don't know. Yeah, no, it's... I, I could see where that would come up, yeah. Roma counters a powerbomb with a backslide for two, but Austin dodges a crossbody and Roma eats Matt. Pillman in, and he leaps over Roma in the corner, but while he's bragging, Roma clotheslines him down for two. Arn and Roma work together to wear Pillman down, and Pillman collapses on a whip. Jesse claims that Pillman's knee is hurt. What? Tony says in the flattest possible voice. (laughs) Yeah, that was great. Pillman's tights have now shifted to expose one butt cheek. Pillman shoulder blocks Arn in the knee and flings him outside and fakes him out on a dive, but Arn dodges the real dive too, and Pillman eats barricade. Pillman barely makes it back in at nine and he blocks an Arn suplex, so Arn quickly tags Roma, who sunset flips in for two. Austin saves, and Roma goes after him, so Pillman knee strikes him and distracts the ref so Austin can dump him on the barricade. Back in, Pillman and Austin trade off wearing Roma down, expertly preventing his escapes. Austin pretends to ride a horse to taunt him. They use Arn to distract the ref and do an interesting double-team rope choke. Austin holds Roma's legs to elevate him, and Pillman holds his neck to the ropes. Meanwhile, a sign in the crowd praises Brett the Hitman Hart. I'm sure that WCW was thrilled to see current WWF performer Hart praised on their show. (laughs) Yeah, I bet. If you notice, the uh, camera starts to zoom in a bit to try and hide the sign. Oh, it did not. <laughs> but it can't it, but... quite get it out of focus. Yeah, it's it's funny. Nice. Roma eventually smashes Pillman to the turnbuckle and tries a top rope dropkick, and Pillman counters with his own dropkick, but both miss. Both of them make the tag. Arn runs wild and counters a Pillman back body drop with a DDT. Arn goes for the pin on Illegal Man Pillman, and Austin axe-handles him for two for a still Illegal Man Pillman. <laughs> Tag to Austin, who was legal anyway, and he and Pillman trade off wearing Arn down and get two counts with Austin elbow drops, and Austin smashing Arn's face into Pillman's boot. Arn tries the DDT, but Austin drops him on the ropes, 
and the Blondes sneak in double teams whenever the ref is not looking. Arn almost gets to Roma, but Pillman decks Roma, who charges, distracting the ref so that Arn's roll-up only gets two. Austin belly-to-back suplex also gets two. Arn ends up on the apron and suplexes Austin outside, and Tony claims that's not a DQ because Arn was himself outside. Jesse points out that Austin still went over the top rope. Again, he has a point. (laughs) Yes, he does. Pillman double axe handle for two. But Cheek is still hanging out, FYI. Yes. Arn hits a diving Pillman with a double axe handle and tags Roma, who runs wild with punches, back body drop, and press slam, and everybody gets in. Arn flings Pillman out, and Austin dodges a Roma clothesline, but runs right into Arn's beautiful spine buster for two for Roma. Mm-hmm. Roma rolls Austin up, but with the ref getting Arn out of the ring, Pillman clotheslines Roma, and Austin rolls on top and pulls the tights for the three count and the win. Austin collapses to the ramp as Arn checks on Roma, and the blondes celebrate with their belts, exhausted. Thoughts on this one? I enjoy this match quite a bit. I think talking about this compared to the second match, the other tag match, this really nails the more advanced tag formula. Mm-hmm. And this is people that are really used to tag wrestling, especially Arn, obviously, wrestling tag wrestling for a long time. So it's a really good use of this formula. They do all the tricks, you know, the missed tags, you know, the different the refs distracted. They definitely nail all that stuff. I will say they take a while to really start, don't they? To be fair, it is character work. It's, you know, the heel stalling, like, take a move, go outside, oh, my my face is hurt, you can check on me, everything. Yeah, fair enough. I, I, this match feels maybe, I don't know, what do you say, like, five minutes too long? I think so, yeah. I think, like, it, it's not huge. No. But it just feels like between the start and maybe they go a little bit too long on each of the face and peril moments. Mm-hmm. there's just not enough to break them up or something. I don't, I don't know. It's not major by any means. No. Um, I think it's still a very good tag match, but it just definitely feels like you could trim it a little bit here and there. For sure. No, I, I can absolutely say that. Uh, for me, I thought everyone, for the most part, did a really good job. Arn obviously has his character down, and he has all the fundamentals in the world to look really strong in this match. Yes. Pillman, other than the fact that he's half exposed for <laughs> more than half the match... When I was rewatching, I, I made count of when the time was. Like, when it happens, it's like an hour 16 in the show, and it's there throughout the rest of the match. So it's a good more than 10 minutes, close to yeah. 15 minutes, yeah. There, there is no way you did not realize that this had happened, Pillman. <laughs> in fact, there's a, there's a brief bit on the outside. Uh, I think when they're both out there and they're attacking, I think it's Arn. Austin's out there, he does a bump, and he just his own tights. Like, just very quickly. And it's like, so you guys can't do that. Yes. just says not to. I think the one that doesn't really truly shine, I don't think they, they do terribly here, but Roma doesn't really have a big moment for me or moments that stand out as being really, really impressive. He has a solid fundamentals there, but those weird things like the way he does the backslide, it's like he, he almost necks himself doing it. Yes, yeah. He does give himself a like, thankfully slight head bump turning over. He doesn't like go on the shoulder like he's supposed to. Yeah, fortunately, he's, you know, it's just him kneeling down for a backslide, not yeah. doing a hurricane rata or something like that. Right, so, right, yeah. Other than that, he doesn't really botch anything. It's just, no, he throws good punches, he throws decent cross bodies. The only other point that I noted is just that bit with him doing the flip over Austin, where I'm just not sure if they were actually intending oh. to do the bear hug bit. or but, Oh, yeah. But if that is a botch, it's so well covered. I mean, they do an excellent job of making that look like what was supposed to happen. Yeah. I will say he looks pretty good in his miscross body, although he is yes. outcross body in the next match by True. a mile. As for the finish, 
I totally get why they do this finish. So you have the classic thing with the heels cheat. It kind of works because it's you know it's the ref's attraction. It's still one of those ones where a basic move ultimately wins the match. It's just a yeah. clothesline, but calls it into a pin. So you kind of give it a little bit of a pass. Yeah, you, you can reason that it's like he's not, it's totally not ready for that hit. So right. it has more impact than normal. Yeah, right. And it's not like he's clotheslined and then like Austin goes and lays down for a pin. He like knocks him into a pin, so it's a little more. And he also does hold the tights too. So As, yeah, yeah, yeah. For me, it's a very minor blowish that they went that direction, but they also don't mess up the finish. So it's like the bad finish is just not what I like. The timing's very good on it. And I mean, it's a genuine finish. It's not a DQ. It's not a count out. It's, it's an actual pinfall. It's a definitive ending to the match. It is, yeah. I don't prefer that finish, but I, I, I don't critique them for how they did it. This had some excellent tag team action from these teams. There's a lot of subtle little moments and perfectly timed close calls on tags and great teamwork on both sides. There's a wonderful moment where I believe it is Pillman going for a tag on Austin, and Arn manages to stop it. And Austin still swings just an inch away from being able oh. to actually make contact with Pillman's hand. So it's like an absolutely perfectly timed moment there, really Got nicely done. There's several of those over the course of this match where they do an excellent job with these these close calls on tags. We got some really classic tag spots, in some cases, some Anderson-style tag blocking being used against Arn's team, which is neat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And some good face and peril segments where either Arn or Roma kept fighting, keeping the crowd into the match, even as they got worn down. I do feel like, like I said, this went a tad long for what it had, though uh, just cutting a couple minutes from those bits would have helped as we kind of get some repetitive spots as the match wears on. Mm-hmm. Also, they do set a few things up in the early match that never really pay off, most notably the bit where Pillman seems like he's hiding something in his tights. Oh, yeah. But then there's no hidden object that ever appears to get used. Unless maybe that's happening during that final clothesline, but I didn't notice anything like that anyway. And they don't build up, oh, look, here's the thing you missed, Jake. You noticed this before, yeah. So it occasionally feels like this hasn't quite been fully thought out as a result. But regardless of that and the persistent Pillman buttocks, it ended up a good, fun tag match as you'd pretty much expect with the Hollywood Blondes and Arn Anderson in there. To his credit, like you said, Roma did his part well enough as well, but if there's any question of where expert tag work comes from, I think we all just credit Arn Anderson more. Oh, yeah. <laughs> has, a, has a bit of a history there. Just to talk on Roma for a second, I agree. I don't think he did anything wrong on this match. I think he did like all the basics perfectly well. That's really the thing with him, I think. Where, you know, People will, will talk about Paul Roma as like the worst of the horsemen. I don't know if I totally agree with that, but he's he's definitely among the lower ranking members anyway. Yeah. It's not because he's like an actually bad wrestler. I think what it is more to me is it feels like he is an average, generally acceptable wrestler that seems to think that he's more than that. And maybe maybe this is actually a storyline thing that they were going for, or, but maybe not. But there there just seems like there's certain matches where it feels like he thinks he's building up the group rather than the group building up him. Yeah. Like they're lucky to have Paul Roma in the group, basically. But I, but I mean, you, when people talk about Paul Roma and say like, oh, the worst of the horsemen, Paul Roma, you can take that to mean this guy's an awful wrestler. And he's not. He is a perfectly acceptable performer in the ring. He just doesn't have that extra bit that really puts someone over the top. That's my take on Paul Roma as a horseman. I mean, yeah, if you're going to talk about, like, the worst person, objectively, based on in-ring work, it's obviously Sid Vicious. I mean, no question. <laughs> I, I, and I defend Sid Vicious way more than you do, but 
That's objectively true. He's yeah, it, Sid Vicious and Mongo, I think, are the two worst in ring workers that they ever have. Just both of those guys do have more personality than Roma, and I think that's what kind of saves them. They have big moments that really rescue them one way or another. Either Mongo's delightfully weird promos, or Vicious is just sheer impressive size and power and everything. Right. Roma really is. You know, you you took an average template kind of wrestler. And put him in the Four Horsemen, and there's nothing wrong with him, and maybe you know, they would have eventually hit on the right point and been able to run with it, but he kind of does feel a little bit weird, even though th- what they're trying to do here is take a guy that's relatively low on the card and build him up by inclusion in this group. It just feels like it just never quite clicks. He's hurt by his introduction as well, mm-hmm. because as, as we covered on the show that happened before where he's introduced, Tully Blanchard was supposed to come back. That's the guy we haven't yeah. fully blanked on earlier. But yeah, he was supposed to come back. But how did you blank on on? I don't know. Match of the night specialist it, Tully it's Blanchard. It's weird. I was like, I know one more person. I could not think of it. I can remember Barry Windham, but to be fair, he's on the show. Fair yeah, enough. I I can't believe I did that. <laughs> but anyways, supposedly, as the story we told, he supposedly offered a ridiculously low ball salary, according to him, anyways. And it wasn't even. It was like a per show appearance or something. It wasn't even like a contract, apparently. So we turned it down, like, oh, who can we get? And then they went to this direction with Paul Roma. So it's like, the horsemen are back, and here comes Paul Roma. People are like, what? what? Yeah, yeah. So from the get-go, he had that to overcome, and he fortunately never did. You do kind of wonder, based off of that, like, do you think it might have gone better for him if he hadn't been second choice, if he had been the plan to begin with? You know, there's no implication that they're building towards Tully even in the lead up to building up the horsemen, maybe Flair is saying stuff like, we're bringing in the new generation or. Right, we're going new direction. You know, like, or, really yeah. building up, there's going to be an unexpected person. Mm-hmm. Like, do you think it's disappointment that really cripples it and it would have gone better without it? Yeah, it, it's like um, they're going for what would be the template for evolution later. Yeah. Also with Ric Flair. But to your point, if they had built a revolution and they hinted that someone really big was going to come back and join the group, like it. A Hulk Hogan level or a Scott Hall, that kind of wrestler, was going to come back and become part of Evolution. And then Randy Orton, the guy who barely knew from SmackDown, he'd be like, oh. Then he'd be like, oh, he's that disappointing guy. We thought we were getting someone cool. Yeah. A number of things just happen, unfortunately. And he never really pulls ahead and pulls out something really big. You go, oh, this is Paul. This is why you need to watch Paul Roma. Uh, Yeah. Solid guy that performs well, but he doesn't have that extra thing that you need to be part of the most elite group in wrestling. On the same class show that I'm coming up quite a lot in August, there would be another match between the Horsemen and the Hollywood Blondes, which would be won by the Horsemen so they get to win the tag titles. Okay. Slight issue, though. Brian Pillman would have minor injury and thus not perform in that show. Uh, okay. So this is the show where the Hollywood Blondes are Steve Austin and Stephen Regal. <laughs> That's about as far from Hollywood as you can get. <laughs> yeah. They really should have gotten like a big Florida wrestler, because you could have done that angle, because you have Hollywood, Florida. Hollywood, Florida, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or or like if, if there's a place that is blonde in the name or something, like, I'm from the blonde or something, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, Regal not being blonde or from Hollywood is, is definitely interesting. Bring in Max Payne and say he's doing their soundtrack. <laughs> there you go, yeah, sure. Between... That show, and it's in August, and the next show, which is noted as two months out, there's a whole kerfuffle involved in the NWA, which I think we've covered a little bit, and we'll cover more for sure, probably when we cover Fall Brawl, because that's when a lot of it happens. Yeah. 
as to why there are two tag team titles on this show and there's one tag team title on Fall Brawl. Speaking of Fall Brawl, the Horsemen will be defending their singular tag team title against our favorite team, the Nasty Boys. Oh, well, if anyone can make something of it, if Arn's in that match, maybe he can pull something out there. We'll see, yeah. We cut to Eric and Missy, and it emerges that Missy is going to party with the Hollywood Blondes. Eric builds up the Iron Man match, and Missy declares it a dream. Eric advertises Fall Brawl and throws to the Iron Man challenge. So our sixth match is Ravishing Rick Rude versus The Natural Dustin Rhodes in an Iron Man match for the vacant WCW United States Heavyweight Championship. The referee for this match is Nick Patrick. Another Beach Blast, another Iron Man match with Rick Rude. <laughs> but this time it's actually for a title. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's true. At the time around Starcade of 92, the U.S. champion Rick Rude would be injured and fortunately got to be stripped of the U.S. title. This would lead to, you guessed it, a tournament. <laughs> oh, uh, why? This, yes. <laughs> to be fair, this, this tournament uh, would come down to a finals match between Dustin Rhodes and Ricky Steamboat which sounds really good. And thus we would get U.S. champion Dustin Rhodes getting his first big title push in WCW. Cool. Obviously helps having your dad being Booker there, but he is... Uh, Fair enough, but yeah. Yeah. It gets your foot in the door, but you still got to stay in the door. Yeah, he, he's an interesting case because you can certainly credit the fact that Dusty is Booker for maybe being the reason that why he gets some of the breaks in his career. But then he actually is a genuinely good wrestler as well. Oh, yeah. He probably gets breaks because of his dad, but then he proves that he actually did kind of deserve them. Exactly, yeah. It's, an, it's a really interesting case. A little bit later after that would happen, Rick Rude would return from his neck injury, and he demanded his title back, apparently forgetting how this whole title thing works. He's assuming he's just handed back to him for some reason. Come on, Rude, there's got to be at least 12 tournaments before that happens. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, on the build, there would be a bunch of conversation between them. Dustin was defending his title against someone else, and he'd be attacked by Rick Rude with steal the belt, and obviously eventually he would get it back. But ultimately, they'll come down to a match between the two of them where there would be a contested ending where both the shows were down and then up as, like, as he talked in the commentary, it matters, like, how quickly the shows being up happens. Mm-hmm. So it's contentious enough that the title is upheld. So after all of that, a guy strips the title, a tournament happens, and then once the guy comes back, they hold the title up again. <laughs> Rude makes his entrance first to his ridiculous theme song. We see a sign in the crowd that reads, Ravishing Rick Rude is the Iron Man, but he will never be the man. Jesse reads it, but cleverly cuts off at where it says, is the Iron Man, to turn it Mm -hmm. purely into a compliment. Nice. Rude asks for respect as the next United States champion. Rude's tights today feature bionic legs, which is awesome. Yes. The character, I think, is supposed to be him, but it looks more like Freddie Mercury. (laughs) A little bit, yeah. Like, is, is Freddie Mercury a Terminator? (laughs) Rhodes comes out in his usual awesome sparkly jacket. He only has one, but it's a good one. That's true, yeah. Jesse is not a fan of Rhodes' The Natural theme song. Yeah, quite about being on the goat warping music or something. Yes. It's a very specific, confusing complaint. They get in each other's faces and grapple around the ropes, forcing Patrick to interpose himself to break them up a few times. Jesse praises Patrick for that, astonishing Tony. Rude cheats early and often with eye rakes and swivels his hips. Rhodes hits a back body drop and lands hard strikes, then slaps on a reverse chin lock and mocks Rude's hip swivels. 
Rude constantly searches for leverage during the chin lock and a nice touch. Mm-hmm. Rhodes drops on Rude to keep him in the hold, but Rude eventually gets his knees up. Ow. Yeah. Rude clotheslines Rhodes, and he gives a great spinning sell. Rude top rope axe handle, and he swivels his hips, but his back hurts, so he decides I must suffer for his pain and puts on a bear hug. Makes sense. Rhodes fights back, but Rude turns the bear hug into a belly-to-belly suplex for two. Rude works a reverse chin lock, but Rhodes hits an electric chair drop, but Rude gets his knees up on a splash. Exact same spot with Steamboat last year, as I recall. We have now hit the 10-minute mark. Rhodes works the leg with kicks, a knee drop, a vicious ankle hold, an apron smash, a standing ankle lock, a leg drop, and even sort of a seated sideways figure four, earning one and two counts when Rude slumps from the pain. Some really excellent variety of holds there from Rhodes. Yeah, it's it's almost, I think it's called Indian death lock, I think. It's similar to that. Yeah, it might be, although isn't that the one where they like stand up first and kind of do the fall back into it type of thing? I think so. Yeah, it's as well, let's do the JR thing, which is a modified insert name. Yeah, there you go. There you go. So, modified any of that luck. Rude finally manages an eye rake to get free, earning a warning from Patrick. Rhodes lands punches and whips Rude to the ropes, but eats a knee strike, backbreaker, and the Rude Awakening for three. So, that's one to zero for Rude. To this show's credit, they pull a little graphic up that tells you about it. Yes, they do. Uh, admittedly, about two minutes too late. Right, yeah. And then it shows up in Squiggle Vision. It's like somebody realized, oh crap, we meant to have that designed before the show and forgot. So they do a quick Microsoft Paint drawing. Yeah, I think I noticed, because I watched his match most recently, is Tony praises the graphic, but he says it an, an somewhat sarcastically, so I'm not sure if he actually liked it or not. It's like, that's a really impressive graphic we have here, guys. <laughs> like, to go back, like, thanks, I think. Rhodes wonderfully stumbles all over the ring once he's up, until Rude hits him with a diving clothesline for several two counts. He really made the Rude Awakening look impactful there. Oh, yeah. Rude beats the crap out of Rhodes, who rolls to the ramp as we hit the 15-minute mark. Rude snaps his neck across the ropes. Patrick starts counting Rhodes out, and Rude counts along, but gets bored around four. Yeah. Rhodes makes it in at seven. A beach-themed scorecard appears, as you noted but it's several minutes late. <laughs> yes, that's true. Rude goes for a tombstone pile driver, only for Rhodes to walk up his body on his hands and reverse to his own for two. It's another spot from last year, but it's still cool. Mm-hmm. Rude ducks a crossbody, so Rhodes sails out to the floor and barely makes it back in at nine. Yeah. Rhodes' crossbody misses are epic. I like just yeah. does an amazing job when someone dodges those. I do like this... Uh- at the break the count, you know, get back in one better than the previous one, because the previous one, he's on the ramp. He's, like, inches from the ring. It's like, he's not really that far away. Yeah. He still sells the drama of trying to grow in in time at, like, seven, but it's not like, you know, you're on the floor and you suddenly get your strength and dive in. Right, yes. He's kind of, to, to take one step over the ring, so you're fine, buddy. Yeah, yeah. You can literally just keep crawling along the ramp, because it's even ground with the ring on that one, where this one, he actually has to get himself up off the floor, yeah. Exactly. It's just less dramatic, is all. Rude earns two counts with snap suplexes as we hit the 20-minute mark, but Rhodes counters with his own suplex for two. Rude pulls the tights to send Rhodes to the turnbuckle to stop a comeback, and tells Rhodes, You ain't The pitfalls of live TV, Tony notes. Yeah. He is very loud, Mrs. that, yeah. Yes. Rude lands strikes, works a reverse chin lock, and slaps on a sleeper. Dustin excellently sells with a great dazed look, mm-hmm. but raises his hand when Patrick checks. 
Rode's jawbreaker as we hit 25 minutes and 5 to go. Rude decks Rhodes and blows his nose at him, for which Tony apologizes. Yeah. Rhodes drags himself up by Rude's chest hair, which could not have felt great. <laughs> no, no, no. Rude lands strike after strike, but Rhodes blocks a turnbuckle ram, spits on Rude, and lands massive right hooks. Rude rakes the eyes, lands punches, and dodges Rhodes' strikes, but Rhodes fakes a punch, runs behind while Rude's ducking, and lands the bulldog for three. We're tied up, one-to-one, with only three minutes and five seconds to go. Rhodes earns two counts with the bionic elbow, a pile driver, a huge dumping elbow drop, and a rapid clothesline combo, one minute left. Rhodes slaps on a sleeper hold, 30 seconds. Rude jawbreaker's free and goes up top, 10 seconds. Rhodes dodges a rude leap and hits a DDT, but Patrick only reaches two as time expires. Rhodes thinks he's won, but Patrick signals it is still one-to-one, as he could not complete the three-count. The match is a draw. Rhodes is distraught at ringside, staring sadly at the title belt. He did a good job there, actually goes over, picks it up, and looks longingly at it. He does. And then sets a really just excellent moment there from him. The scoreboard pops up again to show the final one-to-one score. Again, several minutes too late. (laughs) Yes. The U.S. title is still vacant. Thoughts on this one? It's a solid match. Uh, Obviously, as we're going to cover, the big comparison this match has to overcome is to last year's match with Rude and Steamboat. Yes. To be fair, it's not unwarranted. It's not like these are two random matches years apart. It's not like, you know, bring every Iron Man match to the original WrestleMania 12 one by everything that happened between. This is the same event the next year, and with one of the two competitors in it. So yes, there's plenty of reason why you'd be comparing these matches, understandably so. Yeah, I think it's totally valid to make that comparison. Yeah, yeah. there's no there's no leap of logic to go. Why are you so hung up on this match? I'm like, oh, because it's one of the two people. And it's the next year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To their credit, they do tell different stories in the match. Yes, they don't do the four to three finish where you have the super fast start and then. Steamboat's way down behind and has to work his way back up throughout the match. They also cleverly invert the ending. It's Dustin Rhodes this time yes. who really needs to get a pinfall. Dustin, I think, does a really nice job here. He really sells everything quite well. Mm-hmm. He has good days sell. He sort of thumbs around the ring. Stuff like that and his big cross-body dive that it always seems to miss <laughs> could definitely be comical. In different matches, but down in the panels, Though, like, the way he stumbles around could look silly, but he really, he commits to it so well, and, like, little, little details we've talked about. And it's earned here. They, I mean, he just took a really big move, so if he did that off of, like, getting a normal clothesline done or something, it'd be comical, but it's off of the guy's finisher, and he's trying to continue the match. So it makes sense. Yeah, you just got knocked out, basically, and are trying to get back to consciousness while walking. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. The way he does these things is really is really good. It could easily look stupid or look silly or cartoonish, but he does a good job there. Mm-hmm. What I liked because of this format they did, where ultimately ends up being a one-to-one, not getting to the finish part yet, but this layout really makes it a lot more back and forth than the other match was. The Steamboat Rude match is Steamboat's ahead, he's just like dramatically attacking, and then suddenly he's taken out one below and gets his big deficit, he's got to earn his way back up, he gets Rude. This one is definitely a more even match. And really, I think both of their characters shine through, much like it did last year with Steamboat and Root as well. Yeah. 
Rude really nails his cocky character, even to the point where the commentators, both the heel and face commentator, are saying that they wish he was more aggressive on actually doing moves and not, you know, blowing his nose at him or taunting the crowd and everything. Yeah, I know Jesse at some point says, I don't know if him taunting that much is a good idea. He's only up by one. Exactly, yeah. It, this is one of the matches, too, that's really aided by commentary, because they really do sell a story. Uh-huh. Now, so the ending. I I get what they're going for, but for me, if you've done all this build, you've had a, you know, you've had a guy up the title, you've had a tournament, you've had a fighting champion, and then you even have a contentious match or two where the title is held up and made vacant, and then build the pay-per-view match where you have a draw, I would have done that. I don't like it. I'm in agreement on that, yeah. I, I just don't get what they get out of it. Either way they'd went, going fine. You could have Rude doing something really devious to get a title back, and then you could build up to the next pay-per-view simple fall brawl and have Dustin have to earn his title back, which he really should have lost. You can have Dustin have a big blow-off win, which, given the direction they go, seems to be a better day anyways. Yeah. And ultimately, again, you have a vacant title, and you have a big match which ha- could have multiple pinfalls in it, and you just don't have a finish. Mm-hmm. It's oddly foreshadowed if you listen to commentary as well, because they're talking about the match and like the rules, and I think Tony says something like, if there's a winner. Like, oh. Oh, okay. Don't say, don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't I don't necessarily think it's him giving the finish away. I mean, half the time it sounds like they don't tell him what the finish is on right, the shows anyway. So. so I don't know if he actually do it. And it's just, it's just a turn of phrase, but it's just, with this finish, it's funny. So he says, if there's a winner. This was clearly not as good as the Steamboat versus Rude Iron Man match, and it definitely suffers from the fact that we watched that one on last show, rather than having a year's worth of shows between them like fans at the time. Though, as you noted, it is entirely justified to compare the two. Oh, yeah. It doesn't really help also that several of the big spots in this match are pretty much lifted wholesale from that one either. Yes. For what it is, though, it is a respectable Iron Man match, particularly considering that Dustin Rhodes has considerably less experience than Ricky Steamboat. He's about five years into his career versus about 16 for Steamboat at the time of his match. True, yeah. Both Rhodes and Rude absolutely put in good work here, and there's a lot to love. Rhodes' variety of leg holds is great, as is his mockery of Rhodes' dancing, and Rude has so much character and showcases a similar great grasp of Iron Man match tactics as last year, getting ahead and then working hard to stop Rhodes from getting momentum. I didn't like the flow as much this year. Each guy only getting a single pinfall is much less exciting. Yeah. But I do appreciate that they made this match different from the prior one, as you noted, Al. Even, as you said, inverting that final furious flurry to be about Rhodes trying to get ahead rather than Rude trying to come back. I don't love the tie ending either. An Iron Man match should be definitive, even if it has to go into overtime. Yeah. Still, taken purely on its own, this was a good match. Yeah, absolutely. It just has the misfortune of being in the same series as a better example of the same type. I don't want to sound like a backhand compliment. I feel like it's going to, but <laughs> Dustin Rose is noticeably more in shape for this match, I think. He looks good, yeah. It speaks to him specifically training both in and out of character, knowing he's got to wrestle a 30-minute Iron Man match with this kind of rule where there's no break against a guy who rolled pinfalls. So it is a compliment. I, don't, I mean it as nice as way I can. Yeah, yeah, I, I get I get exactly what you're saying. Okay, good. Exactly Try to make sure that, how that can sound like back-ended thing. But no, yeah, he's he looks like he's specifically prepared for a 30-minute match 
yeah. that was going to be intense. He has a very good look for this match and seems to have good stamina for it. I mean, that's it's impressive work. I will say one thing on the ending. The actual timing on the last like 30 seconds that they did really well. Oh, yeah. yeah. The jumping over and hit the thing and then go for the pin. They do, at that point, have the clock up on the screen. So you can actually be counting down with the clock. And they get it exactly right. Yeah. I think I noticed rewatching this. I don't think it's necessarily a peek behind the curtain thing. It could be a thing just that refs do. But I noticed towards the end, when they're doing the sleeper spot, you can hear Nick Patrick blindly tell them, six minutes, guys. Yeah. It's kind of telling how much time they have. But I could see if ref doing that otherwise as well. Yeah. If this wasn't an Iron Man match, it would be really obvious what's going on. But I could see like in an Iron Man match telling the competitors how much time. It actually does make kind of sense yeah. that that would be a referee role. Yeah. Yeah. And it's fair, it is also Nick Patrick in his big, booming voice, so... <laughs> yeah. I'm sure he was probably whispering it, but <laughs> it just it came through. So the title situation would be resolved shortly after this. Surprisingly, it is not in the same clash show I've mentioned what feels like a hundred times now. They actually would have a blow-off match on WCW Saturday night in late August. One final match, a regular match, really after an Iron Man match, where Dustin Rhodes would finally beat Rick Rude and become the US champion. Okay. As for Rhodes, uh, he is required legally and by blood to be in a War Games match, which is taking place at Fall Brawl. <laughs> so that's what he's doing. More on Rude later, because he falls from their people. Tony notes that the controversy remains between Rude and Rhodes and builds up the upcoming NWA title and the Masters of the Powerbomb versus the Superpowers. He goes over Flair and Wyndham's history and throws to some footage of several brawls between Flair and Wyndham. During one of the clips, Tony name-drops Jackie Crockett, as he and Crockett are trying to find Flair and Wyndham, who end up brawling in the parking lot. Our seventh match is The Nature Boy, Ric Flair, versus The Lone Wolf, Barry Wyndham, for Wyndham's NWA World Heavyweight Championship. Referee for this one is Randy Anderson. Barry Wyndham would win the NWA title on the same pay-per-view that Ric Flair officially returned to the WCW, since they're all saying it, I might as well too. As a show of respect, because he was at ringside, he came in and was going to put the belt around Wyndham's waist. Wyndham didn't see him come in and thought he was doing something else. So that started this mindset of where you think of Flair as his enemy. Uh, this also led to a part I mentioned earlier, where Flair and Anderson were challenging for the tag titles on the Clash show. But Wyndham interfered and caused them to technically win by disqualification, which again means they didn't win the titles. Yeah, so they're trying to build a story of basically that Wyndham, you know, he sees himself as the lone wolf. He obviously, he's most known being associated with the Four Horsemen and before that Lex Luger and, you know, part of his family association as well. But here he's on his own. He doesn't need you know, his help. He's got to really prove that he's the man in WCW. And to be the man, you got to beat the man. Yeah. He's got to defeat Flair to prove that he is truly the champion, even though obviously he is, in fact, the champion already. Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic that they will highlight throughout the match, that Wyndham is the champ, but it feels like he is the one with something to prove. Exactly, yeah. On the previous Clash show, Wyndham had his only major title defense, which was oddly against Two Cold Scorpio. Oh, okay. I can actually see that being kind of neat. Oh, yeah. I, I don't mind the match at all. It's just, it's just kind of a random, seemingly a random pick. Yeah. Flair is out first in a tremendous gold robe. Mm -hmm. Weirdly, his music cuts out very early, only getting the opening notes out. 
Wyndham is out to uh, his theme, and he gets it the whole way to the ring. Uh, interestingly, in the video package, he had like a goatee, but he has shaved since then, which is kind of a shame as the goatee looked really cool. Yeah, I thought it did as well. A fan in the crowd has a homemade cardboard replica of the big gold belt. It is actually not bad. <laughs> mm-hmm. They put a lot of love into doing that. I appreciate it. They trade strikes until Wyndham levels Flair with a clothesline. Flair kind of forgets to sell a Wyndham punch. He, like, stumbles back but doesn't show any pain. Hmm. It's rare from him. Just once, but, yeah. Flair lands chops and gives a woo. Jesse notes that even if Wyndham is champion, it feels like he's the one who has to prove himself. Wyndham whips Flair to the corner, and Flair flips over the turnbuckle and falls to the floor. Wyndham mows him down with a clothesline. Jesse claims Wyndham is, quote, pulling out no stops. It's all the stops, Jesse. Yeah. As a <laughs> pulling, pulling out no stops would be not trying at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Wyndham suplexes Flair back in and no-sells his chops, so Flair pokes his eyes and wears him down for a sleeper hold, but Wyndham rams him face-first to the turnbuckle, so Flair flops. Wyndham earns two counts with a power slam, a leg drop, and a huge flying clothesline, but argues with the ref and walks into a couple of Flair right hooks for two. Flair dodges a clothesline and crossbodies Wyndham out of the ring. It seemed like something went slightly wrong there. Wyndham didn't catch Flair like you normally do, and he threw himself backwards quite visibly. And then he also drags Flair out moments later, which probably means both guys were supposed to go out originally. Yeah, that's what I was thinking that as well. Maybe it's a tricky thing because of his size. Even as big as Flair is, because people kind of forget Flair is a normal-sized pro wrestler. He's just somebody that they're all giants. Yes. But Wyndham is taller and lankier. Wyndham is a very, very tall guy, yeah. Yeah, so I could see if maybe if Flair hit him too low on the chest, maybe, he'd sort of bounce off the ropes and not go through. Yeah. Whereas you got to hit him higher up towards the shoulder, and they'd both go carry over. So maybe that's what happened. They brawl outside as one fan yells, Flair, you're too old! Get out of wrestling! Buddy, if you're expecting Flair's career to wrap up in 1993, I have some bad news for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Back in, Flair hits an atomic drop and a knee drop, but Wyndham blocks a suplex, puts him up top, and hits his superplex. He stuns himself as well, though, so he's unable to pin. Mm-hmm. He eventually drags himself to his feet and goes up top, but Flair dodges an elbow drop. Both men are down, but Wyndham eventually crawls on top for two. Come on, Harry! Someone yells. So close. Yeah, yeah, like, who, yeah, who's Harry? <laughs> like, I, th- I think there's like one slightly drunk guy in the crowd or something during this. I don't know. Yeah, it could be. Flair gets two with a roll up. Wyndham flings him to the turnbuckle, but Flair goes up and over, sprints along the apron, springs up top, and hits a flying body press. But Wyndham flips it over for two. Flair kicks Wyndham in the knee and goes for the figure four. Wyndham fights it off several times, but Flair eventually locks it in. Wyndham stretches for the ropes, but can't reach, and his shoulders are down, so Anderson counts three. Flair wins. Neither Wyndham nor Flair seems to have realized that the match is over, as Wyndham is still fighting the hold and Flair still has it locked in. Anderson audibly tells Flair, you've won, and a stunned Flair releases the hold and celebrates to loud cheers as the bell belatedly rings. Thoughts on this? That was a quite good match, although I will say it's surprisingly brisk. Yes. I got that really feeling. I didn't notice as much watching it before, but then looking at the timestamps, I'm like, oh, wait, yeah, this is over way quicker. 
this match is technically shorter than the second match of the show. Not by much, mind you, but mm-hmm. still, it's weird that Andrew title match with Ric Flair is like 11 minutes long. Yeah, yeah, it's it's quite short, yeah. With the time they're given, or the time they work, however you want to look at it, I think they do a good job of telling a nice story throughout. Wyndham obviously can use his strength and size advantage early on. Flair has to counter that eventually. And Flair's also going to counter the fact that Wyndham knows him very well, having been teammates together, and colleagues even not on the same side. So it's nice to see that certain moves that might work for Flair and other people don't work for Wyndham because, you know, he's seen it before or he's worked with them when he's doing these moves. Yes. He notably gets several counters of the figure four at the end, even before it gets locked in. Yes. Which I, I really liked that. Yeah. Thing which I think is the, unless I just completely misremembered it, the only few times they don't do the Flare goes for the figure four is immediately is rolled up and kicks out a two spot. Yeah, Wyndham does counters with, like, kicking him away and yeah. levering him around with the legs, but I don't think he ever does the roll-up, no. That's just weird, because that, that, that seemed like that's a rule. It's even carried over to Charlotte Flair's matches. Yeah. Almost always, the first time she tries it, they, they roll her up and she kicks at it, too. <laughs> it's interesting that they both no counters and also don't do the most famous counter. Yeah. At some point, I'm not clear when, Wyndham is legitimately injured during this match. Oh, okay, it actually does happen during the match. I, I read... Uh, various reports on this, and there was a lot of disagreement about whether he had it coming into it, or it happened during the match, or it happened after the match, or like just that it happened around this point. That could be the case. When I've read it happened during, but again, it's it's like the Clickner reports around it. So I'm wondering if that affects the match length. I'm wondering if he's coming in injured. Did they work a shorter match, or did he like not feel right during the match? So they go to the figure four spot and then go for the pinfall one. Rather than, you know, going from that and doing the reversal and then wrestle more match. I don't know. I'm not sure that they meant the match to end when it did. Mm. It's very possible. But yeah, yeah, I'm just wondering yeah, if, if, if the injury plays a part in the match being short or if they booked it that way from the get-go. Yeah, could see that potentially being the case. For me, this was a good match, but not near as good as I was expecting with these two. Mm. The overall plot is fine, and I like that they plotted this one out to show, like you said, that they knew each other very well, with Wyndham in particular getting some notable counters for Flair's biggest spots. I also thought that they brought some really good emotion and intensity. They made it feel like a big fight. Absolutely, yeah. Unfortunately, there are just some moments that get a bit awkward. There's moments where they just don't quite feel to be on the same page, like the bit where Flair doesn't seem to sell a punch and the crossbody bit where they don't go over the ropes right. Right. And the ending is just odd. Like I said, I've, I've heard it variously reported that Wyndham either got a knee injury prior to this match or during this match, but I wasn't able to clearly confirm the details as reports disagree. Whatever the case, it felt to me like a mistake. Like Wyndham accidentally left his shoulders down too long on the count, so he clearly had been counted down, and Anderson just had no choice but to go with that as the finish. He's clearly counted three. Hmm. I've not been able to find clear confirmation. Even Tony Schiavone on what happened when just says he thinks it was a mistake. Right. I could see that being the case. I could also see that being the plan finish, and so Flair just selling the idea that he doesn't know the match is over. Yeah, but it, but it is just the entire way that that plays out is a little weird. You have both Wyndham and Flair seeming surprised that the match is over, and even the timekeeper clearly is not on the ball and brings the bell several seconds uh, after the end of the match, so the crowd doesn't react either, not realizing that the match is done. Yeah. The whole thing feels oddly done. The timekeeper guy, I mean, he's waiting for the ref to do his, you know, figure gun salute to tell him when the match is over, so he's 
I could stand him being late if the ref isn't yeah, signaling fast enough. That said, I feel like if you did that finish with Wyndham reaching for the ropes for too long and getting counted down, clearly intentionally highlighting it immediately and getting immediate reactions from the wrestlers, it's actually kind of a neat finish. Yeah, I think you said when we were watching the first time together, well, this has to happen at some point, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, at some point, you you, you constantly see people going down and getting counted down, but kicking out at the two. At some point, someone does have to get pinned by the figure four. And the way in which it happens is kind of cool, if that actually is the intent, or even just by accident. That is explicitly because Wyndham is reaching for the ropes so, so much that he's stretching back and putting his shoulders on the ground to do that rather than him being passed out from the pain. I feel like this is an accident, but I also feel like it's a cool finish. <laughs> it's, <Yeah>. it's weird. <laughs> there was a thing that we did of probably a few years back now where Baron Corbin, he was putting his mission on, and he was you know, reaching for the ropes, and at some oh, right. point, yeah, he actually like, he, he taps them out a couple of times, and they ref counts that. What he's actually doing is reaching for the ropes and missing. They have to slap times, the mat. But it looks like he's tapping out, so the ref counts as a tap out. Yeah, yeah. that was fun. All told, this was a match with a good outline and generally good performances, but it's just dragged down by a few awkward flubs and a bit of a strange finish, preventing it from rising to the level that you'd expect from Ric Flair versus Barry Windham. It's still not bad at all, but it's nevertheless a little bit disappointing. I'm less disappointed by it, to be fair. I like the idea that, as part of the story, Windham was real aggressive from the get-go. Oh, yeah. They don't do the slow work build-up bit with you know, Flair wooing and people getting mad and yada yada. Uh, those are all good, but it's nice to see a match where Flair's attacked right strongly from the get-go, and that throws his whole game plan off. Yeah. No, no, no. Again, I, I love the actual story of the match. Oh, I, know, I, get I think it's, it's, it's brilliantly done there. It's just that there's these little points where they just don't quite seem to be working as well together as you would think with these two. No, I get that. I'm just saying, for me, those little things I think give it a little more leeway in my in my mind. But I, I, I can I could totally see that. Like, it's, there's a match you picture when you hear about it. Yes. And there's times that happened. You know, I think it's their I think it's their last match against each other. There's a match where it's Chris Benoit and Eddie Guerrero, and like I think it's the ACW One Night Stand, and it's not terrible, but it's like it's not great. And you're like, this is 2005 Eddie Guerrero and Chris Benoit. What happened? And you know, there's all these people speculating what happened. It's that kind of situation. You people you know can work well together and know are good workers. So when they don't deliver a like amazing knockout match, you, you right. wonder like is something going on? And yeah. and again, this is still good. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, I know. I don't, get it. Yeah. Don't get me yeah. wrong. This yeah. is no, still good. Yeah. Right. But but if you're picturing this great clash of champions in its epic encounter, and then if it's not quite that, it's hard not to think, oh, this could be better. Yeah. I totally get that. Yeah. Yeah. As we'll go over later, there's a whole lot of nonsense involving Flair not being the NWA champion by the time the next paper comes around. Yes. And coming as the WCW International Heavyweight Champion at Fall Brawl. Uh, at that show, he will defend his title against Rick Rude, coming off of not winning the US title. Unfortunately, as noted, uh, Wyndham is either injured before the match or during the match or some combination of both. So he actually did not appear on TV again until Slamboree the next year when he's the mystery opponent. Which I believe, if I recall correctly, he then re-injures his knee. Correct. <laughs> and he's out of wrestling for two years before he returns oh. to the WBF, yeah. Poor guy, poor guy. Jesse is at ringside with Ric Flair. 
Nature Boy, I'll tell you what, I had my doubts. I didn't think it could be done 10 times, but you proved me wrong. And you proved like I think George Foreman proved to a lot of people that you get better with age. 10 times Nature Boy Ric Flair, world heavyweight champion. And most importantly, I beat a great champion of Mary Wyndham. But now, as they say, it's time to style and profile. It's time, once again, to look at every wrestler in the world today and say, guess what? I'm back. Read what you want to read, believe what you want to believe, but go to bed every night of your life knowing there's only one world heavyweight champion today, and it's the nature boy. So, whether it be babies, adolescents, Teenagers, yuppies, or the old, whatever it is that makes me get up and go, someone like Big Van Vader, Barry Windham, Rick Rude, Steamboat, line up. I live and die for this, and I live and die for someone to prove that. To be the man, you gotta beat the man. Well, there you got it, Tony Schiavone. Let's go now to Eric Bischoff and Missy Hyatt standing by. A moderately confusing statement about age groups aside. Yes. This was a typically great flair promo. Oh, yeah. He nicely credits Wyndham as a great champion seems excited at the prospect of new challenges, and lists off loads of potential challengers, including, again, Wyndham, to build up not just himself, but the title and several other wrestlers. Flair is a master of using his celebratory promos to make lots of people look better, Mm -hmm. and this is a prime example. There is one minor flub in the middle, though. Flair declares himself the one world heavyweight champion, Yeah, but there's actually a second world title in WCW at the moment, the WCW World Heavyweight Championship currently held by someone Flair lists later in this very promo, Vader. Maybe Flair's just a little bit thrown by the awkward ending of his match. Aside from that, though, great promo. It's, yeah, classic Flair stuff where, again, like I said, he builds up his competition while also building up himself because he's so great because he beat people that are great. Yeah. Again, we talked about before, it's not always thought about by people. If you beat someone that's so amazing, that makes you all the better. Exactly. I beat a great champion in Barry Windham. That means I'm great. <laughs> you know, it's yeah, exactly. it's a it's a nice thing. But I, I love that. And I love that he lists all these contenders he's excited about facing, which sells that he genuinely believes these people have a chance to beat him and he wants to see if they can. It's such a great promo style. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You look great by beating beating great challengers. Mm-hmm. And just uh I mean to excite the crowd, like He's listing off all these possibilities, like, and people are got to be thinking, oh my gosh, we might get 
Flair versus Vader. We might get Flair versus Wyndham in another match. We might get Flair versus Steamboat again. Oh, wow. Yeah. He's one of the best promos in the business because of things like that. Absolutely. As funny as he can be and as 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 clever as he can be, I, th- I think these are the best things about his promos, where he's just able to build up everybody. Yeah, I can see that. Back to Eric and Missy. Missy thinks that Vader and Vicious will stomp the pants off of Sting and Davy Boy. Eric says it remains to be seen. This was valuable. <laughs> yeah. So you're saying the match that hasn't happened yet hasn't happened yet? Yeah, yeah. That, that's uh, good to know. Mind blown, man. Yes. The next match brings us our first encounter with something truly special. Mm-hmm. WCW's early 1990s mini-movies. For a few matches in the early 90s, WCW produced these very, very strange short films. Yes. That set up the match and stakes in ways that went way, way beyond the norm for wrestling promos. Things like Sting versus Vader in a potentially lethal tug-of-war in a castle. Uh Uh-huh. Or Sting and Jake Roberts shooting laser beams from their eyes. Yes. And then there's, well, this. Yes. Al? Alrighty. So to set things up, we have the Unholy Alliance of Vader, Sid Vicious, and their respective managers, Harley Race, and Colonel Robert Parker. They are in a boat... And they are traveling to an island, and they are discussing things they already know to each other, as characters do in movies. They are still upset that Sting and Boy turned down their chance to fly off to, quote, anywhere in the world to a retirement facility of their choice. Instead, they want to take this tag match at Beach Blast, which has zero stakes for the world champion Vader. They are discussing their plan, and they are a bit coy about it. They say that the plan revolves around someone named Cheatham. Yes, his name is Cheatham. C-H-E-A-T-U-M, Cheatham. Race asks uh, Parker if he could trust Cheatham. And both Vader and Sid offer to do the job instead. Parker <laughs> explains that he trusts Cheatham, quote, like he is my own, he says. <laughs> we then cut to an island where Stig and David Boy are playing beach volleyball with a bunch of kids and, I'm guessing their parents? Could be the youth group thing, maybe? Can you imagine a sepoy camp, but in like an an island with Sting and British Bulldog in 1993? Uh, yeah, yeah. That'd be that'd be interesting. That'd be interesting, yeah. So we first are, are, could look at Cheatham. Cheatham is, as we describe, a little person who is wearing a wetsuit, has a goatee, and an eye patch. Yes. So you know, you know, he's evil. Presumably, there's another version of Cheatham that's I don't know, uh, be nicem that doesn't have a, have a goatee and as. Wear his glasses and an eye patch, maybe, I guess. <laughs> he swims up like a shark, right up to the their boat is parked on the shore, like with a very shallow water. Like he could walk kids are standing in there, so it's very shallow water. And and to be clear, by like a shark, you literally mean he has a shark fin on yes. the back of his wetsuit Correct. for some reason. Yes. Yes. And they play a ripoff of the Jaws theme, yes. He pops up by the two kids that are staying by the boat, pops out and he scares them off. And he's carrying what looks like a big thermos. He opens up the thermos, and there is a time bomb in it. Yes. I believe the thermos was to keep the time bomb getting wet. So at least that kind of makes sense. As much as any of this makes sense, obviously. Can I can I pause for a moment to psychoanalyze this plan? Sure. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> okay. So first off, we have the idea here is he's being sneaky, right? Yes. He's trying to get there without being noticed and get to the boat, which he does by intentionally wearing a shark fin on his back. Mm-hmm. So that it looks really terrifying that he's getting close to two small children playing in the water. 
honestly, he's really lucky that no one noticed and ran over to try and get the two girls out of danger because that would have blown the entire plan. Yes. So maybe next time you'd go without the shark fin. Yeah, yeah. But it wouldn't be as, wouldn't be as funny, Bob. Yeah. You have to understand, you know, jokes have to be layered to the point of ridiculousness. Sure. He has to be a little person. He has to have a goatee so he's evil. And he has to have an eye patch. And he has to be dressed like a shark. Take one of those things away. Like, you take his goatee away, it's just not funny at all. <laughs> I don't want you to get about comedy, Bob. So they planted a time bomb uh-huh. on, on the boat. This is not a remote trigger device. Nope. This is a time bomb. And Parker and Harley Race are going to offer staying in Davy Boy in a moment, the chance at retirement again, paid travel to the retirement destination of their choice. Not clear if they also will pay for the retirement resort fees on a regular basis or if it's just the travel. But anyway, what are they going to do if they accept? <laughs> if they, if Sting says, yeah, oh, that sounds good. But they've already planted a time bomb on their boat. Are they just going to say, oh, oh, you agreed. <laughs> Oh, well, uh, uh, hold on a second. We just have to go over to your boat for no particular reason. Oh, my. What's this? I'm sure it's nothing. I'll just get rid of this for you. <laughs> well, counter, counterpoint, Bob. They are evil. So they're just going to blow them up either way? Is that the <laughs> yes. idea? Yes, that's like, the idea. But it's just like, why go through the trouble of making the offer? Just plant the bomb. Then. Well, because well, of the way the thing plays out, the bomb is planted before they, they even actually arrive on the island. So it's not like they need to show up on the boat to distract them from seeing Cheatham. No, yeah, yeah. They could literally just plant the bomb and just, that's it. And the boat just explodes at some point. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's the most nonsensical thing. It's like, I would get it if they used a, a remote trigger device where they could be like, okay, we planted the bomb. And now if they say no, we'll go back to our boat, pull out the probably absurdly large, like Paul Heyman style cell phone remote trigger device for the time and uh, and press the big button on it to blow it up but it's a time bomb <laughs> correct it's going to go off no matter what maybe the idea is like if they accept the offer then they were going to like party with them on their own boat all the way back because they're being don't worry about that out that old boat you left there oh. yeah <laughs> after all that happened the heels storm the beach like it's Normandy with this little boat where the front part drops down and they walk onto the beach. Sid Vicious is wearing his wrestling gear, which, to be fair, would be, other than the boot, would make sense on a beach. It's a perfectly it's fine beach wear, yeah. It's a Speedo, yeah. But he's wearing flip-flops out of his wrestling boots. <laughs> Whereas Vader is wearing his full gear and, yeah, screw that, I'm not wearing flip-flops. So, yeah, they come out and they approach the faces who seem nervous. They march to the Twitter like a spaghetti western playing some music they have from the again from the Turner catalog that sounds like a showdown between the man with no name and someone else with the happen. They again give him the offer of the first class trip to the retirement facility of their choice, and Sting plays up the idea that he, you know maybe maybe we should go along with it. I mean, look how big they are, how strong they are. Like maybe it's a good idea. Davy Boy is incredulous; he can't believe that Sting is saying this. Him saying this makes the group of bad actors they cut to really sad. <laughs> they are the worst actors yeah. ever. It's like, yes. it, like oh, it's- Wait, and the, the editing is amazing. There's like six of them on the beach. Then when Thing does his lines, they cut to like eight people in a fully different location. Yes. And like, oh, like what? I can't believe it. I think it wouldn't have been so bad in this segment if they actually had that crowd in shot 
reacting live to the promo. But because they cut to another shot, you can tell they're not actually reacting to that thing. They've just been told, you know, someone probably holding up a sign like, go aw. (laughs) Yeah. It's like the flashing sign for the uh, audience at a yeah, taping of sh- TV show, yeah. Will Sting accept this offer and retire, even though, in fact, he's not retired as of 2023? Somehow? <laughs> nah, he says. And they, they then proceed to say their very elaborate line, mostly in sequence. They do their best. I think Dave Boy is like a, a split second behind Sting here. Like, nah, we'll see you at Beach Blast. So they reject it again. That makes the bad actors I cut to happy. Yay! Woo! It really gives me great respect for the big cheering crowd from the end of UHF. Not that UHF is this amazing Oscar-winning film, but they actually nail that, and we're going to big news in the Al Cheer moment for a comparison. After being berated by the faces, the heels make a not at all a vague threat about not not be able to make it to Beach Blast. <laughs> Somehow, our hero cannot figure out this is a threat. I mean, it is Sting. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's worded so ominously, there's no way any, any human being can go, wait a second, you trying to kill me? But they don't see that. We then get an abrupt cut, which is not on TV. Like It's not like they cut to commercial and then cut back to the mini-movie. They're just a sudden abrupt cut of, of some time has apparently passed. Sting, no longer with the crowd, is suddenly talking to the two kids that saw Cheatham arrive. These poor kids are not old enough to deliver dialogue properly. It is 100% not their fault. Yes, no, yeah. It's like a kindergarten play. When- yes, that's that's what I was thinking, is kindergarten school play with Sting as the teacher on stage, kneeling next to the kids and gently prodding them to deliver the line they'd been taught, you know, repeated to them roughly three seconds before the camera started rolling. <laughs> And and also to his credit, I will say Sting does a nice job here. He like seems very gentle and kind and yeah and good with the kids. I no, yeah. that was kind of a heartwarming moment aside from being part of a bad movie. <laughs> yeah, they sort of kind of tell him about the funny man pissing on the boat, so he runs off. Seconds later, like he had just walked up behind, and like not enough time has passed for him not to have clearly heard this. Yes, like seconds later, David Boy walks up the exact same kids. And they started telling the same story again, but they simply mentioned the ticking sound, which they didn't mention the sting for some reason. At least not clearly. So suddenly we get this dramatic shot of crowding between Sting looking around on top of the boat and British Bulldog running down the beach like it's the training montage in Rocky Three, Or an episode of Baywatch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dave Boy does what's obviously like a dive from, not even like a diving board, just something from like a pool into the water. Yes. Like he jumped from the sand into the beach. But they cut about three seconds before he, he he would hit the water. And then it suddenly cuts to him in mid like diving clothesline where he just hits Sting like Wyndham hit Flair on the outside of the ring in their match earlier. Which caused them both to fall into the water next to the boat. Suddenly cuts the boat on the outside. A completely different shot where they're nowhere to be seen. The explosion is very lazily interposed in front of the boat because they didn't blow up a real boat for this. Oh no! Are they dead? No! They pop out and just kind of raise their arms in the air, posing for a free stream that does not happen. <laughs> they really, they really you just stand there with their arms up and this stone-faced, and it's clearly not a freeze frame. Because you can see him sort of moving and like blinking. It's bizarre. It really is, it's like the, the joke ending they would do to Police Squad. Oh, right, right, yeah. Where right. one, either they'd all be freeze frames at one guy, or there's the one with the mon- where the monkey's not freeze-framed and they, they ignore it. 
they just they stand there so long. It's a second, but it feels like hours to them. You watch them, like, they cut you? Hey! And then it says, to be continued, at Beach Blast. Which somehow they'll reach without a boat. Um, yeah, they'll swim there. It's fine. Oh, yeah. Mercy, mercy me. This is amazing and terrible. I'm so glad they did this. I love with that jump that yeah. they, they simultaneously cut really quickly and yet somehow too late. Yes. Where you can clearly tell that he's starting to go down into the water yeah. at the time they cut. So it looks so awkward when they cut to another shot. And <laughs> God, it's so good. Like his body is rotated downwards already and suddenly it's forward again. And also not clear how much distance he's had to clear to get there. Right. Because he's got to jump from the sand, and he's got to like turn in midair and hit Sting. But then up fourth, they both clear the boat, so they're not killed in the explosion that happens right next to them. Yeah, yeah. You were making comparisons to the movies we've watched recently, right? Yes. Oh, yes. That's the thing. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Going back a few episodes, we had First Daughter, which had the hilarious scene where the it's the person standing on a landmine slash wired explosive, what have you. They do a light jump, and suddenly they're 20 feet away from the front of the house, which is an obvious, obviously like a digital effect, and it blows up in the background on the screen. And they're okay, even though they were in the doorway. An enemy of the, the immediate following contrast, which is watching Universal Soldier The Return, when they do actual dive from a floating building with real stuntmen in a... I guess it's really two shots. It's... They have in front of the house, and then a far away side of the explosion. But yeah. clearly, Stuntman actually dump away from an exploding building. <laughs> so yeah, this is definitely worse than for the Soldier Return, but arguably better than yeah. First Daughter. It's just so much distance in First Daughter. Yes, that it's, yeah. that it's just like there's no explanation other than they teleported. Yeah, where with this one, you can you can at least maybe kind of get close to buying that Davy Boy could have covered enough distance for that to matter and the explosion is not particularly huge so right yeah being a decent distance from it is all you'd need right because in, in the, the two movie examples it's you know a whole cabin blowing up a, or a whole yeah. building blowing up. it's a whole huge detonation yeah yeah this is a relatively small time bomb placed on a speedboat but yeah that is a good question of how they got back i guess they just swam there although that i guess they had to call the coast guard for the families didn't they uh, no they left them it's a whole civilization on that island now Oh. Yeah. I found this simultaneously amazingly stupid and just amazing. Yeah. I will say, I'm disappointed that they didn't just show this on pay-per-view. I wish they had just run this as the actual promo package for yes. the show. This totally should have been on the show, yeah. It makes a great juxtaposition, I'll say, with the rest of the show, which, I mean, they have people that are a bit over the top. Like, you know, the power blonde over the top and other mannerisms. When... Pillman gets punched, he goes aside and has, you know, Austin checking his face, you know, like yeah. that. You have some silliness here and there, but nothing to this level. No no one has tried to detonate a boat. Yeah. No, no. And not, nothing on this show feels like this mini-movie at all. Right, yeah. Yeah, I'll discuss this a little more. I feel like there's definitely them trying to market their company, that being WCW, to a couple different audiences at once. Yeah. And not really being sure how to do that properly. This is a great example of how that works. So our eighth match and final match is the Masters of the Power Bomb, Big Van Vader with Harley Race and Sid Vicious with Colonel Robert Parker and sadly not Cheatham. Oh. Versus the Superpowers, Sting and the British Bulldog, Davy Boy Smith, 
Referee for this one is Nick Patrick. Vader and Vicious have one heck of a rockin' guitar theme, and do look very intimidating as they come out, as is right and proper for dangerous criminals who blow up boats. <laughs> Sting and Davy Boy come out to Sting's theme in about the most epic trench coats they possibly could. Mm-hmm. Both are red, white, and blue, with loads of glitter and tassels, and decorated with their respective nation's flags on the shoulders. And Sting, of course, has red, white, and blue face paint. Absolutely epic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the show could have been absolutely terrible, and it would still have been worth watching just for those coats. <laughs> I can see that. Sid nicely helps Vader do up his mask before we start. Vader's tights have folded over the V, so they read Ader. <laughs> yeah, it's um. I think that would happen because he has the pants as one part. Yeah, and then he has like the trunk part that he pulls over, and sometimes they don't get in the right spot, unfortunately. Yeah, it happens a lot with that particular outfit of his. Yeah, it does. Yeah, Sting and Vicious start. Vicious shoves Sting, so Sting takes him down and lands heavy punches, a back body drop, and a one-handed bulldog. Dodges a punch counter to a sunset flip and sends Vicious butt over tea kettle with a clothesline. Vicious gets tired of all that and chokeslams the crap out of Sting, then spits at Bulldog. Vicious and Vader double-team Sting while Bulldog accidentally distracts Patrick. Vader and Vicious fling Sting and Bulldog out, but they immediately climb back up top and hit simultaneous top-rope clotheslines to the heels. The crowd is exultant. Mm -hmm. Tags to Bulldog and Vader, and Vader asks, Who's the man? Vader pounds Bulldog's face to mush. And ask the crowd who the world champ is. Tony notes that Flair would say it's him. Vader tries a suplex, but Bulldog floats over and counters with a massive, stalling suplex on Vader mm-hmm. for two. Holy crap. <laughs> Vader flattens Bulldog with his leaping double forearms, and a small portion of the crowd does actually cheer for Vader. Vader and Vicious trade off destroying Bulldog. But Sting slaps Vader. Vader angrily rips his mask off and punches Sting, who charges in. Patrick forces Sting out, and the beatdown continues. Odd bit as Vicious goes for a double axe handle while Vader holds Bulldog, and Patrick starts warning Vicious, but then Sting gets in, so Patrick goes to yell at him so he can miss the double team. <laughs> Got the order a bit wrong there, guys. A little bit. Bulldog fights out of a nerve hold and slams Vicious, but Vicious tags Vader and lets the unaware Bulldog pin him, leaving him open for Vader. But as the ref is getting Vicious out, Race grabs Bulldog, but Bulldog dodges Vader, and Vader nails Race. Bulldog makes the tag. Sting pelts both heels with punches and lands a great dropkick to Vader. Stinger call. Vicious nails Sting from outside, and Vader and Vicious trade off pounding Sting to find paste with Vader landing such heavy strikes that they blow right through Sting's guard. Vader lands the falling fridge. Yes! Vader goes for a superplex, but Sting strikes and bites to escape, but Vader stops the tag with an elbow drop. Not long after, though, Sting dodges a Vicious elbow drop and makes the tag. Bulldog gets Vicious reeling, but Vicious tags Vader for a Samoan drop for two. Vader and Race protest the count. He kicked out at two. I can count real well, Patrick responds. <laughs> Second rope Vader bomb for two, as Sting saves, but Vicious shoves Sting to the ramp. Sting slams Vicious on the ramp, as Vader hits his amazing moonsault to Bulldog. But, 
Sting sprints all the way down the entrance ramp and leaps over the top rope to hit Vader in the face before Patrick can even count. Mm-hmm. And perhaps the most epic pin save in wrestling history. It's gotta be up there, yeah. It's an amazing spot. Sting leads the crowd, cheering for Bulldog, and Bulldog dodges a Vader clothesline and swings up for a crucifix pin, levering Vader down as Sting holds Vicious back for the three-count and the win. Sting and Bulldog get to the ramp, celebrating as Race looks dejected. WCW gets a great replay of Vader's moonsault and Sting's brilliant dive as part of the post-match replays. Thoughts on this one? I like this one quite a bit in a lot of ways. The big spots, like the amazing suplex, Sting's comeback, Sting's long sprint and dive save, even Sid doing some of his good Sid stuff, like his choke slam looked really nice. Vader's offense looked extremely painful, and it yes. probably was. Yes. A lot of stuff looks really good here. I think for me, certain things didn't quite get enough time. For instance, the suplex that Bulldog does is amazing. No question about it. Even if you can tell that Vader's helping, there's still a lot of work Bulldog's doing on his own. Yeah, Vader can help get himself up there and hold still, but then it really is Bulldog doing the work of lifting him. Right, right. But So the way it plays out, that's an amazing spot. But within 20 seconds of the spot, Vader's back up and knocked Bulldog down. You're like, oh. Like, no one really has time to process, wow, could just this guy did to this amazing powerhouse, this guy, because mm. he just knocked back down again so quickly after. I still enjoy the spot, but it's, it doesn't quite have the same effect. The way I would like this is, you know, Bulldog does suplex, maybe Vader, like, rolls out, you know, or, or Race pulls him out or something. And they really sell. Look what happened. Look at this big mm. thing. Instead, it's Let's go right to the next move. There's a rushing aspect to it, if that makes sense. I can see that. I don't think it bothered me that much, because I felt that it helped to emphasize the match's theme, actually, that, you know, as many times as Sting and Bulldog managed to make an opening for themselves, Vader and Sid are just too strong. Mm. And so it really takes the combination of everything to do over the entire match to finally get just enough time to get the win. To me, it's less of a improper emphasis on Bulldog's thing and more an emphasis on just how strong Vader actually is. That even when this happens, it still doesn't take him down. I'd say I like spots like that when the crowd really has time to react, though. Mm-hmm. It's not like a real major thing, but like stuff like that happened. And like I feel like they get just a little better. But I, I get your point with the overall story of the match, that I'm going to wear them down. It absolutely is true, and they definitely nailed that quite well. A lot of the matches, like I said, is just them being the crap out of Sting and Bulldog, which is enjoyable to a certain extent, but I'm, I'm turning to you with tag matches, because we have three on this show. There's a certain familiarity that comes with that. And Fair enough. They, they didn't do quite enough to distinguish this tag match from the others. That said, I, like, I do like a lot of the, the, that spot with Sting. is epic. The suplex is amazing. I, even knowing it's coming on the rewatch, I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe this happened. So I enjoy a lot of this match. It's just certain pacings off a little bit. It's more focused on them being up and eventually recovering. And even the ending is a little rushed. The Sting diving is amazing. The Vader saw before that's great. The fact that Bulldog, right after getting Moonsault, within 20 seconds is up and then does the crucifix pin. Even if they, they build up that he has to pull Vader down with leverage, that part seems a little rushed to me. It's just a, it's a little thing on a match, but yeah. Okay. Overall, I still enjoyed it quite a bit. I thought this was a terrific spectacle. 
Exactly the sort of insane superhero slugfest you'd expect when you heard that Sting and the British Bulldog were fighting Vader and Sid Vicious. Vicious does some of his best work ever here, landing some really nasty strikes and showing off his power. Bulldog doing a stalling suplex on Vader was absolutely bonkers, and he looks great throughout, an excellent combo of might and speed. Mm -hmm. And Sting had the crowd hyped beyond belief and kept the match high energy whether he was delivering or receiving offense. And then there's Vader, of course, who is scary as heck, putting on a dominating performance. Of course, yeah. The match told a great story of Sting and Bulldog finding openings, but finding them cut off rapidly because of the foe's sheer might, until they finally managed to find the chance they needed to turn things around. The only real complaint I've got is that neither of the masters of the powerbomb ever actually hits a powerbomb. I was thinking that too, yeah. Which perhaps calls their title into question just a tad. Yeah, maybe if you do the change the finish slightly, maybe Sting does a dive in to break up the pin, him and Vader have a brief scuffle. Vader goes for a powerbomb on Sting. Bulldog runs over, you know, hits him, and then does the crucifix pin counters. Like, he pulls him off the powerbomb. Could see that, yeah. That could be a way to do that. Yeah, it's a tease that if he's about to the powerbomb because the moonsault didn't work because of Sting's interference. If he had had the powerbomb, it would have been over, but they were together in the brief window they had there, to your point in the story. Mm -hmm. That could have helped it. But yeah, that's a good point. They didn't really attempt a powerbomb. Yeah, it's just kind of funny that that doesn't happen. Vader hits what is called the Vader bomb, but that is not a powerbomb. It's actually him jumping off the second rope and landing on you with all his weight, flattening you into a spot on the mat. (laughs) Yeah. He's dropping on you like he's a bomb, but it's not a powerbomb. Aside from that, though, what an amazingly fun main event. I could not help but be all smiles after watching this match. I would characterize it as the closest thing to a Marvel movie that WCW will ever get. Yeah, I can see that. It is a superhero brawl. (laughs) In contrast to to what you said, like, this being the third tag match on the show didn't bother me as much as it normally does. Interesting. Like, even the fact that they do two face and peril segments and, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's the very normal tag formula type of stuff. I think the fact that it's Vader doing it made it feel more like this is Sting versus Vader. Not, this is a normal tag match. Because, I mean, whenever Sting fights Vader, whether it's a tag match or a normal match, there's an extended period of time where Vader is pounding the ever-living crap out of him. So, oh, true. it's just kind of, you know, that's Tuesday for, for them. <laughs> right, right. It being Vader definitely helps, yes. I'll say that. And just the fact that, honestly, me being astonishingly impressed with Sid in this match, even, was, I think, helping keeping me uh, from thinking of it in normal tag terms. Yeah. And just the big spots as well. So, um... I didn't have that feeling of of repetition about this at all, where normally I I very much would with a series of tag matches. So yeah, it's interesting we kind of switched position on that (laughs) on this show. As a uh, reward for getting the pinfalls match, David would get a rematch. Recall he fought a Samurai for the title for Vader's world title, which is oddly absent both physically and stakes wise on this show. I don't think he had even had the belt with him. I don't think so. No. There must be a story behind that I don't know about. Like, why is he not walking on the belt all the time? To, like, or why, at least, why isn't Race walking on the belt thing? Look, I branched the world champion. Look at me. That's bizarre. Um, anyways. For contrast, David Boy gets to fight Vader for the world title, which is both a reward and a punishment, obviously, because you got to fight Vader. That's true. Well, Sting and Flair are oddly teamed up with Harley Race's newest clients, the Awesome Kongs. Wow. Yeah. That, that's your reward for being NWA world champion, Flair. You get to fight with the Kong, the Sting. At least you get to work with Sting. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's... It, yeah. It at least kind of connects the story again because they're racist other clients and everything, but it's still weird that, like, it's not Sting and Sid Vicious fighting in some form of Clash of Champions. It's, no, no, it's with these guys in tag match. Yeah. Uh, as part of the story that happened before this, we had the very infamous Cactus Jack is powerbombed and has amnesia. I get to see one of the Lost in Cleveland segments. Certainly there's more on the show they wasn't able to see. Boy. Yeah, as part of that, uh, Cactus Jack, who's now a face, says, returns from his <sighs> amnesia to become a problem for Vader, who, of course, took him out. That leads to Jack facing a uh, hand-picked opponent from as a hired gun in a quote-unquote bounty match on Fall Brawl. However, the big match from Fall Brawl is, of course, the War Games. Yes. Which involves the tag team of Sting, Bulldog, Dustin Rhodes, and their infamous mystery partner, who we <laughs> absolutely talk about when we cover the pay-per-view, against the Master of the Powerbomb, Sid, Vader, and, of course, Harlem Heat, making their first real big showing here for us in that match. Tony and Jesse discuss the match, but Vader walks by behind them, smacks Tony in the neck, grabs his chair, and hurls it down, shouting about not being beaten. Tony tells him he's the man, and asks Doug Dellinger to get him out of there. (laughs) (laughs) Tony takes a few moments to calm down, and then he and Jesse stand up for the wrap-up since Tony's chair is now deceased. Tony builds up Fall Brawl and War Games, and Jesse says it's far from over. We get end credits over cartoony Beach graphics, and Beach Blast 1993 is done. So your overall thoughts on Beach Blast 1993? That was a pretty good show overall, honestly. Going on the card, Wonder and Simmons, while it wasn't my favorite match, was enjoyable. The tag match, while a bit formulaic, was quite enjoyable. As Nothing else was a showcase for Tuchel Scorpio, with, uh, I thought, Tex and Shanghai, even Bagwell, doing their part quite well. Mm-hmm. The actual work rate in Regal and Watch is good, even if the crowd didn't seem to care one bit once they stopped talking about USA versus England. Bad versus Pain was a right, as mentioned. It really could have been longer or it could have been shorter. It was some awkward, too short, too long distance kind of. Tag match was quite good in a lot of ways, even with a screwy finish. The Ironman match, while unfortunately not as good as Steamboat Root, is still really good. It's a recommend for sure on this show. There's really nothing bad on this show, I would say. There's stuff that doesn't seem to work for the live crowd, like the Regal Watts match, or some that I can critique certain things. Yori parts in the match, like, you know, the bad and pain match not being super great, or some little miscues here and there in matches throughout the show. Obviously, the most infamous part of the show isn't actually on the show, as we discussed the mini-movie. Yes. On one hand, I'm sad because it's not as ingrained in history as it should be, but at the same time, it definitely helps the actual quality of the show that it's not on here. This is true. Yes. <laughs> the main event is definitely a great spectacle. Even if it wasn't my favorite match, it's still very enjoyable. It, the thing is, there's definitely some mixed marketing on here with WCW, which I think could be a good idea, but I think it's too much. They're seen in making a very blatant disconnect between the NWA championship and people fighting for it, and the WCW championship and those fighting for it. Because Flair and Wyndham is a battle of respect. You know, it's built on tradition. You know, they, they used to wrestle together and against each other. And it is for this title that has this, you know, 50-year lineage and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. In contrast, the WCW champion is riding in a boat with Sid Vicious, Harley Race, and Carl Parker. And they're hiring a little person to set a bomb on a boat. He's also not carrying the belt with them very much. Everything is very cartoonish and over the top. 
as enjoyable as Vader is being the crap out of people, he's connected to such weird cartoonish stuff that feels like them trying to market to the WWF audience that's maybe leaving around this time because the steroid scandal and people that had to leave, like, interestingly enough, David Boy, they're trying to reach them. So it ends up a very jarring tonal thing where you have Flair and Wyndham, and then you have this craziness going on with these guys, you know, that's the powerbomb, superpowers and everything. I think it could work, but it's maybe too much. <laughs> I, I think if you did it without the mini-movie thing, you probably wouldn't much bat an eye. Because without that, it's not that much different than a normal Sting Vader type of angle. Yeah. But when you throw in the mini-movie, too, it's like, okay, um, when, when did we go to uh, cartoon supervillains? <laughs> yeah, so you think of them trying to reach that demo. Yeah. And obviously, as we see in later shows, especially when uh, a certain uh, red and yellow fellow shows up, they really lean into this stuff. So this is, is kind of both behind the times and also ahead of the times for what they plan to do. That's true, yeah. But with the whole Dungeon of Doom angle, it lasts for what seems like six years, but it's actually like nine months or so. <laughs> yes. It's a very odd thing. The same show where, like, hey, let's have Eric Watts and Dean Regal wrestle, do chain wrestling in his real serious British style, and then let's have a story where the heels are trying to get their faces to retire rather than wrestle in a tag match. It's just bizarre. Yeah. Like I said, that's a show. The show is pretty easy to recommend. Um, there's very few down points for me. Like, I'm interesting when we, when we do the final series wrap up with this and Bash the Beach, I'm curious if any of the like worst stuff is going to even honestly be on these first two shows. I'd be surprised. Yeah. I think in general, everything's been solid at worst on these. So, credit what credit do, other than the sort of ton of whiplash between their two world title divisions, which admittedly will be worked out pretty quickly. It's a good show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought this was a pretty good show as well. I will say, I don't think it was anywhere near as good a show as Beach Blast 92 was. No, it wasn't. But there's eight matches on the card, and none of them are bad. A few do feel a bit disappointing given their match concept or who's in them, but even so, they're actually still good matches. Yeah. I was probably least enthusiastic about pain versus bad, and even that was fine for what it was. If it had been longer, it might have been a problem, but it's only about five minutes, so it's fine. Mm -hmm. All told, the show and some of its matches have the same problem. They're good, but just not as good as they could have been. Okay, yeah. There's good concepts across the board, but small problems. A flub spot here, a build that goes nowhere there, leave things good when they could have been great. Promo content, similarly, is mostly good, but features a few tiny flubs or weird statements that stop it from reaching its full potential. There's tons of energy across the show, and I think all the promos still got their points across, but most aren't quite firing on all cylinders tonight, and some are a little shorter than they could have been. Still, again, overall a positive. Commentary, on the other hand, was excellent. The Tony and Jesse team, save for Jesse's weird obsession with Tony's nose, works really, really well. And they have several great discussions over the course of the night, show a ton of character themselves, and even do some good work cleaning up or covering for some of the problems in matches, like Tony jumping in to quickly give an explanation of the end of Flair versus Wyndham when it wasn't quite clear what had happened from just watching things. Not every joke or conversation lands perfectly, Jesse has a couple of perplexing moments, but overall, the commentary team is a massive, massive plus for the show. Presentation-wise, the show is largely fine. 
It lacks the weird camera color depth and sharpness problems of last year's show. True. It has a nice beach set, and everybody's come prepared with good beach outfits again. There's a few shoddy camera angles here and there, and that weird moment of the lights going out in the intro, but things largely go well. The one thing I'll complain about is the inclusion of Bischoff and Hyatt as secondary show hosts. They feel even less essential than Bischoff and Tony were last year. (laughs) True, yeah. Bischoff and Hyatt barely ever do anything more than say, well, this is what's coming up next, and maybe highlight which wrestler Missy thinks is cute. Yeah. She does host one interview as well, but... It's, I mean, it's the worst of the show, probably. That is true, yeah. Not because of her. Not because of, no, no, it just things get kind of flustered in that. Yeah, I just found the two completely unnecessary. But at least there was not a bikini contest. That is true. I will say it's funny how much stuff is built up as supposed to be long-term changes of the company, like all these rule changes that are gone. Mm-hmm. The uh, guy in charge is also gone. Uh, Bill Watts is out of power by this point. Yes. Between these two shows, thankfully. Even just the idea that um, Ole Anderson is the head referee is not even a thing anymore. Yes, that's true, yeah. A lot of things that were really, really important on 92 are just gone for 93. That's funny. Yeah, overall, this was quite a solid show. It's just held back by some minor flubs here and there, and by some comparisons to last year's show or other prior performances, where it just comes off looking a little the worse for wear. It's absolutely still a fun watch and worth your time, and there's not really anything noteworthy to complain about on it. It just doesn't rise to the level of greatness. Give it a watch, just maybe don't do it right after watching Beach Blast 1992, and you'll like it better. (laughs) Agreed, yes. Match of the night and MVP then. So Al, what is your match of the night? There's a toss-up. There's a few good options there for sure. I don't think we're going to agree on this, but for me, match of the night was actually the Flair vs. Wyndham match. I actually enjoyed that one quite a bit. Okay. I like that they fully inverted the Ric Flair match formula mm-hmm. with him being super aggressive from the get-go. I do wish it could have gone longer. But it's unclear whether he was working hard to begin with or got hurt during the match. I don't have too much against the match, because that's a factor that you really can't control. Uh, yeah, if anything, it's a credit that he managed right. to, to power through, yeah. So I thought they made a surprisingly brisk but fun title match that built off of story, and really annoyed Flair as the new champion going forward. That that was really good. Okay. I really liked the Blondes versus the Horsemen, and actually Regal versus Watts as well, really surprised me. Yeah. But... I have to give this to the Superpowers versus Masters of the Power Bomb. Kind of figured. It's just such an unmatched spectacle put on by guys who know exactly how to get their audience supercharged, and it features some absolutely epic stunts that make it far and away the most exciting match on the show. There's other good stuff on here, no doubt, but that's the match I'm going to remember coming off of this show. I got you. MVP? So a lot of people stand out in their own moments. Let's quickly go through. I thought that Scorpio looked really nice in his uh, big hope spot and his shining moments in the tag match. To your point, Regal and Watch did a good job, even if the crowd didn't seem to care for the most part. Pretty much everyone in the tag match, even Roma to some extent, did a good job and could stand out. Obviously, Anderson and the other two stand a bit more than him, but still nothing against him. Both Dustin and Rude are quite good here as well. Flair and Wyndham, and everyone in the, in the Superpowers matches, best power match are good. For me, when I highlight someone that I couldn't pick his match or match tonight because I didn't like the choices they made with the ending, but all his work in the match was really good. So for me, MVP is actually Dustin Rhodes. Okay. He does an excellent job in his match. Yeah, absolutely. 
again, it's the thing we had before with Flair early on. Flair is known for having these great matches, so you critique him higher. Mm-hmm. So it's like Flair is a good match. You're like, eh, it's a Flair. It's Flair. Of course he has a good match. So Dustin really coming out here, trying to fill in the Ricky Steamboat spot, even if he's not as good as Steamboat because he's just not experienced. He really rose to the occasion here and did as best he could and had his, his own little quirks. And he clearly made a special effort for this Absolutely. match. Like, notably, that leg hold segment is brilliant work from mm-hmm. him in particular. Yeah. So he, he really rose to the occasion. I thought he, he gets gets some love for that. Cool. Yeah. Uh, in my case, I am giving this to Sting. Yeah. Everybody in the main event did an amazing job, but Sting has the crowd in the palm of his hand for the entire match and kept the energy level sky high for the duration. Watch him getting the crowd to cheer for Bulldog in the final moments of the match. Absolute masterclass. He works them into a frenzy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the timing on that save after Vader's moonsault is picture perfect, yeah. despite having to run the length of the entrance ramp to get there. Just more proof, if needed, that Sting is one of WCW's absolute finest performers. It's fun to watch that, too, if you know it's coming. Because mm-hmm. you can see him in the far distance, body slamming Sid, looking over and starting to run. Yes. As Moonsaults start to happen, yeah. It's really, really cool. And a rare compliment to WCW's camera work on that spot as well. Mm-hmm. That they, they managed to catch the entire thing in a single shot, which is great. Yes. I want to give an honorable mention as well, and that is to whoever made Sting and Bulldog's coats for this show. Good job, that person. (laughs) (laughs) And that wraps up our review of Beach Blast 1993. If you've enjoyed listening to us tonight, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook as Let's Go to the Ring. Links will be available in the episode description. Follow us for episode announcements and other show details, and share your own thoughts about each show as we go through. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn, Verbal, or Audible. And please, if you've enjoyed this show, give us a rating or review, and share the show through your favorite social media platforms to help others discover us. Many thanks to OSW Review for attendance and pay-per-view figures, and to Gina Trujillo for our logo. Next up, we continue the series but change titles as we take a look at Bash at the Beach 1994, Hulk's WCW debut. Wow, and you know, I was just comparing that final match to a Marvel movie. It'll be exciting to see the Jade Giant in WCW. Maybe they'll also bring in Thor for an epic brawl staring out of an Avengers film? I sure hope so, yeah. Man, looking forward to that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. This is Bob Moore for Alec Pridgen, signing off. Good night, everybody. Happy wrestling. Exact same spot with Steambot. <laughs> Sorry, Steambot. Nice. <laughs> nice. Uh.